Jacob Walsh. Hello. Oh, there he is. Uh, I thought we lost you for a second. Oh, there's like there. No, there's a there's a delay here, which is annoying, and I think it happens half the time we record. But anytime I say something, I have to I like wait to hear mm. your response. There's a there's just a delay. It's annoying. Valdosta <laughs> delay. The, that's the name of the Valdosta Pro Baseball Team. The delays. <laughs> um, they don't have one of those coming up. We're gonna change our structure a little bit tonight. David Bigelow, who is running the Return of the Orca project, where they're basically rebuilding or remaking the original Orca. Uh, it's it's a really cool project. We're going to talk to him in great detail about it. So he's going to be calling in any minute. Uh, but we thought we'd say hello before that happens, and then we'll have a fuck budget. He's on the ferry right now. He is. He's on his way to Martha's Vineyard. Now, Jake, I've never been to Martha's Vineyard. So tell me, what what are we missing out on right now that David is experiencing? Well, I mean, he's literally just like taking the ferry into, you know, the world of Jaws. It looks exactly the same, basically. And it's just like it's like being in the movie, except for um, most of the time. I don't think there's actually a shark trying to kill you. (laughs) Could be. But just, yeah, I remember the first time I went to Martha's Vineyard. It's like it's just this it's just just this really great experience of slowly the island like coming into view and pulling into port and being like okay well this you know this is in the movie this port is in the movie this is it's all in jaws so it's like it's cool did you uh cry your first time i feel like i would probably get pretty teary-eyed i don't man i don't cry i don't cry i don't not cry i'm always crying Yeah, like I'd be moved. Yeah, like I remember crying, not even when we went to the Ghostbusters firehouse, but just when Abby gave me the itinerary for, for the, the trip. Weekend, yeah, I was like, the oh week. God, it's Dude. gonna be so good. I almost made a fake itinerary for like just a future trip to make myself feel better. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> um. So yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna talk to David. He's gonna be calling in a minute. We're gonna learn all about that project and how people can get involved. Um, obviously Jaws is kind of a big deal here at Yes Have Some Podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, what else is going on? Abby, how's, uh, how's your week? Pretty good. Um, nothing to mention on Animal Crossing, but I did get a nice, uh, little set of Phantom Menace items in the mail today, which is pretty cool from our eBay hang. And, uh, yeah, there's like a blind bag that I got, um, that has like sea creatures in it. And I'm really excited to open that up. Um, I think I'm going to do it on our show Friday. Oh, cool. Now, I I should update everybody. The last time we all talked, um, you know, there was was rumors out there that maybe, yes, have some, uh, you know, there was a rift 
a uh, uh, because of the fish, because of Abby's tropical oh, fish collection. This isn't about Aquaman. <laughs> this right. is not about, about Aquaman. Yeah. This is about the tropical fish collection that I don't have. Yeah. Um, but we, wa- I, I wanted to clear the air, and I mean, I don't want to speak for Jake or Abby, but I think we're. You want to clear the water? I want to clear the water and <laughs> assure everybody that Jake, it only took. You were pretty mad for a week, but you came around. It took me about two weeks <laughs> of no talk. Did I? I don't know. Did I really come across as mad about the fish? I just thought I was. I don't know. No, I'm just. I kidding. was never mad. No. Now we're back. Now we're back. Now we might be fighting. <laughs> now it's fighting again. Now um, we are. Now yeah. it's actually real. No, everything's fine. Now it's a real uh, We don't own any fish. I don't believe we're going to have Now any. we're going to bring out the fish <laughs> to the podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Our first surprise guest is one of the fish. It's like Jenny Jones. Um, no, everything's good. We're, we're, you know, it's all good. Um, hey, I'm glad I brought this up. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, so, cool. We're going to be talking as well today about our toy anxiety. I've had a ton of it. As we sat down to record, NECA has, they've been revealing new figures, what I feel like is every, I don't know, five minutes for like the last two days. Um, lots of Ninja Turtles, lots of Back to the Future. Jake, did you see that NECA Doc Brown uh, right before we went on? I did, man. You know, honestly, like I've been trying, the way I've been trying to deal with all these reveals is like ever since the coming out of their shells were revealed, I've kind of tried to just like, now I say try. I've kind of just tried to shut my brain off to it because it is so much stuff that it's like, it will drive you crazy. It's way too much stuff. Like not way too much. It's just a lot. It might be uh, too much. Like it literally might be. I I have legit anxiety on a daily basis thinking about like just being, even if you just collect like NECA Ninja Turtles, like there's so many figures and like they're revealing new ones. Like yet the t- uh, yesterday they revealed like, um, what was it? Vernon and Muckman and uh, Bondo Gecko, Bondo Gecko yeah. and Rat King, and it's like I haven't even got. There's, I'm not even caught up yet, and like I'm thinking about future. Future me is stressed about finding them, and current me is stressed about finding uh, Metalhead and Casey Jones, and it's uh, it's insane. Did you see? You know, Super Seven dropped some Ninja Turtle stuff today. I sent you guys the link. I don't know if you got a chance to see it, but I bought a San Diego Comic-Con exclusive Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles bath towel. And I'm very excited. No, beach towel. It's a big towel. Wow. Nice. And the, the, the design is based on the original uh, cards, like the trading cards, the 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 wax pack. Um, it's amazing. That's that, cool. Did you, did, did you pick up the Baxter, Baxter Stockman? The glow-in-the-dark one? Yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah, whatever they had, a, they had, a, they had a figure. Yeah, yeah, I did. It, it was amazing. I was like, I have to get this. I'm like, I, you know, we were supposed to be at San Diego Comic Con and um, we're not there. And I'm, 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 I don't know. I'm sad. We were supposed. Yeah, to- <laughs> I keep getting emails um, from different people from different companies for things, and it's kind of bumming me out every time I open them because I really want to be there. It's really exciting, <laughs> even though there's nothing it. happening. Yeah. Um, well, there's nothing there, so it's fine. <laughs> I still would rather be in California or San Diego than here. Yeah, me too. Um, so, yeah, lots of cool stuff. Uh, Back to the Future. You know what I got bummed out about today? We're going to have Trevor. You know, we had Trevor and Randy on from NECA a couple weeks ago. Um, oh, look, Dave's calling right now. So what we're going to do, this is like radio style. We're just going to bring him on. Cool. We're going to ambush him. Joining us right now something we're really excited about David Bigelow, who is heading up this project return of the Orca. If you're a listener to yes, have some, or 
If you're on the internet, you guys are getting a lot of good coverage this week. I saw the bloody disgusting article among others. So Dave, welcome to uh, the show and uh, it's great to meet you. Yeah, same. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited about it. Absolutely. So you're in Martha's Vineyard right now, correct? Yes, I, I just arrived here. Um, there's work to be done to get this project rolling. And I just got plates for a new truck that we have here ready to start doing, you know, shuttling people around and, and uh, things to bring to the boat and, and from the boat. So I had to go to the registry uh, in Massachusetts with the virus. It was necessary to, um, uh, you know, set up an appointment two weeks in advance to get a registration. So I was at the DMV for three hours, basically getting that done. And then I just sped down to Woods Hole to get on the ferry. And now I'm here joining you fine folks. And then afterwards, I'll go put the plates on my truck. Okay. Hopefully we'll be a lot more fun than the DMV <laughs> for three hours. <laughs> yeah. During a pandemic, the DMV becomes an even more special place than it is usually. Another yeah. level of hell. Oh, man. I can't imagine. <laughs> Um, so yeah. we, before you join us, we, you know, we, Abby and I, we've never been to Martha's Vineyard, but Jake's been, uh, a few times and, uh, he was telling us, uh, how it never gets old that, that ferry ride in. If you're a Jaws fan, it's, uh, it's basically what you live for. Yeah. It's funny. There is a, I, I was talking to someone recently and they said, so is there an airport? Do you fly in? I've never flown into this Island. To me, getting on that ferry is the, like the magic carpet to paradise for me. I just, 45-minute ferry ride. You've got the ocean before you. Um, it's just great. And I, I couldn't imagine, like, going through, you know, the airport and, and sort of, you know, and, and it just doesn't seem like the right way to experience the vineyard to me. Yeah, how could you miss that, honestly? Yeah. I haven't done it, but I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm jealous. Now I'm just mad at Jake. I won't be mad at our guests, but I could be mad at Jake. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's get into this. So, um we had talked to John and uh, we we've had him on the show before he's worked on various projects and he got us hooked up with you. So why don't you go ahead and, you know, tell us and our audience what, uh, what return of the Orca is all about. Yeah. Thank you. Return of the Orca is a project that has been, it's kind of a, a new project that was born out of trying to do another project. So it's like a lot of things, a happy accident. And I like to think that Jaws was also a happy accident in terms of how difficult it was to make. And then they birthed the blockbuster. So I'm not saying my book's going to be a blockbuster. I'm just saying it's funny how, you know, things turn, you, you start with one uh, situation and it turns into something else and it actually turned out better. Um, the, the boat is called the Lydia and the Lydia, I purchased it in Amesbury, Massachusetts about a year and a half ago. And I was uh, at the time working on a project that had me dealing with a lot of people from Jaws who worked on Jaws and were still on Martha's Vineyard. Uh, I did interview people who were in Los Angeles who worked on the film from Universal Studios. But now I've, I've come to the vineyard to get to know locals who were part of the production. And one of those people is Chris Crawford. And Chris was the production pilot of the Orca during the filming of Jaws. Is Every scene that you see the Orca underway, Chris is driving the boat. Sometimes he's tucked down in the wheelhouse. Sometimes he's hidden by the cameras behind a barrel or whatever. But Chris was the guy that basically was, you know, Richard Dreyfuss doesn't know how to drive boats. Okay. It's just like he didn't know how to drive that boat. Um, so... Uh, Chris did all the driving, and not only did Chris do the driving, but Joe Alves, the production designer, hired Chris to convert the boat Warlock into the Orca before the filming started for this that sequence. So Chris basically made the Orca based on Joe's designs, 
and Joe created the art direction for it. Um, so, yeah, so Chris Crawford, uh, basically, we are working with Chris, who was on the original production of Jaws, uh, hired by Joe Alves to create. And he is going to be working on this boat with Joe Alves helping design from the safety of his home in Woodland Hills, California, uh, during COVID. Uh, Joe Alves is now 84 years old, and he's, he's a spry guy. He's very healthy. He does his leg lifts and hikes every day still. Um <laughs> But, uh, you know, we don't want to risk his health because at his age, he's very vulnerable to COVID. So Joe is going to do Zoom interviews and so forth to like work with us on the boat. And Chris is going to do the actual work. And we actually have another gentleman named Eric Rodegaff who worked on the original Orca, who's going to come up and work on this as well. So what I'm excited about is not just the opportunity to make this boat, but I'm going to make it with most of the people who actually created the original. And that's something completely, you know, happy accident once again. That's special. Yeah. That's exciting. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, congratulations. That's cool that it's working out that way. So you bought this boat. How does this work? I mean, I want to get into like the, like what the actual project is, but just from the sense of you have, you buy a boat, you know, you want to convert it into the Orca or a replica of the Orca. How does one, like, how do you, I don't know anything about boats. Are you like, did you just see this, the Lydia one day and go, oh, that could be the Orca? Or is there a lot of uh, extra fabrication going into the project to kind of get it to what it needs to be? Uh, well, basically the issue, is, and I don't know as much about boats as most people in Martha's Vineyard. I definitely know about boats because, you know, I grew up here. And in many ways you get to know boats, whether it's sailboats or it's, uh, Boston whalers, you know, um, you know, I don't, I have never taken out a 40 foot schooner or anything like that, but <laughs> me um, either. I, yeah, it, it, you have to be specially skilled to do that kind of stuff. Um, Chris Crawford actually does, he does deliveries from the Caribbean to Martha's Vineyard kind of as a, as what he does. That's his job, you know? Nice. Um, and, but, um, so the boat was really, we needed the boat for a different project. And, and I worked with some people on a project called making the monster. And the concept of making the monster has been something I've been exploring for the last two years, which is a recreation of the making of Jaws in a six-episode docudrama series. And that basically is, I like to describe it as Apollo 13, but about the making of Jaws. That's incredible. So have, that's amazing. Yeah, that sounds like something that we've talked about on our podcast yeah, like, like, that we've dreamt of. Well, because it's such a historic production. Yeah. Well, that's the what's incredible, I think, about the making of Jaws. And, you know, I was here. I was an extra. I appear in the Alex Kintner scene. Um, I remember when the movie was here. And to me, what's incredible about that story is, A, that it was so hard and challenging and everything. Besides not just the shark breaking down, there's a lot of other things that happened that I've learned through these interviews I've done over the course of the last two years, talking to the, the people that were involved. But also that... It was a perfect, interesting blend of both Martha's Vineyard locals and Hollywood studio crew coming together to find solutions on how to shoot a film in a place that the vineyarders knew more about how to deal with than the Hollywood studio. You know, Steven Spielberg says, I want to go to an island and shoot to make it authentic. Steven was 27 years old. He really didn't know what he was getting into because <laughs> he because he was like, oh, we're going to make it authentic and we'll be on the water. And, you know, even, you know, uh, David Brown, the producer, said at one point, he said, had we thought twice about that decision, we would never have done it. Um, I wouldn't trust a 27-year-old so, to do anything, let alone direct yeah, a movie right, or make right. that kind of decision. 
give them a I, budget, I, I, put them out in the middle I, of the I, ocean. At 27, I wasn't responsible enough to make coffee, I think. So um, it, it's, it, it was incredible that, you know, that they really, you know, they, they did uh, make a lot of, you know, false moves and learned that the Atlantic Ocean in the Northeast is not the Caribbean and it's not South Florida. It's the Atlantic Ocean, you know, fairly like tonight we're getting storms here and the wind's going to blow and we'll get white caps probably at like four and five feet once, once it really gets going. So, you know, and when I talked to Chris Crawford, the production pilot, he basically said, listen, we were off East Beach, which is off the coast of Chappaquiddick, and everybody was getting seasick every day because it was just rolling and rolling on the Orca. And so, and, you know, they had to find other places to shoot because eventually nobody kept their lunch down during shooting. <laughs> um, so it's, it was, it was one of these things that I think, you know, proved how every decision made was influenced by things that were out of their control. And I think that's an incredibly interesting story. And I also think that, um, you know, doing a docudrama uh, is a real great way to experience a historical event. Because you can't really, you know, get into the stories. It's not a documentary. You know, there's been probably five or six really decent documentaries about the making of Jaws. And I talked to a lot of the same people that were in these documentaries, Cal Accord and, and Carl Gottlieb and Joe Alves. And, and you know, uh, there's just all these crew that are still alive who you can talk to and they usually go to to make these documentaries. Um, well, I wanted to interview them not for the purpose of a documentary. I wanted to get research. And so I interviewed them for the purpose of getting enough information on stories we hadn't heard. What were the interpersonal relationships like? What did, you know, did your own relationships suffer? Did you start a relationship on the island? Um, what was it like interacting with Martha's Vineyard locals? Too often, these stories have really been about the genius of Spielberg. And I'm not taking away the fact that Spielberg is, I mean, he's an incredible director, and I still think Jaws is one of his best made films because he really came out with the creativity and he has a great eye. He knows where to put a camera. He's a camera operator. A lot of times he knows, you know, that he's a guy who doesn't just sort of see it in a storyboard and have a DP do it for him. He does a lot of this stuff himself. And, and I, I think that that's a great skill to have as a director is really knowing how to, you know, with cameras and lenses and lighting, what do you want? You know what you want. You can describe it to the people you're working with. But, um, you know, in general, I think that, uh, you know, his mistakes and everything that he was doing on the film, making coming to the island, wanting to keep it authentic, you know, um, and and learning that the locals here were going to say, all right, you guys want to get this movie shot? You know, they started with 55 day schedule and it went to 159 days. Okay? They were here the better part of half a year to shoot Jaws. And then they had six more weeks the pickups to do in LA and Catalina Island and, you know, shooting on the lake at Universal and so forth. So it was a fairly arduous, overextended process that pretty much tripled its budget. Um, so I think that that storytelling is really interesting. You know, you've got this, this element of these people had no idea when they were going to leave Martha's Vineyard. You know, there's, there's a point at which when they're here in August, and they, they started in late April, and somebody says who like walks down to the beach and says, are we ever leaving this island? And somebody says, it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. You're in the twilight zone where you just film Jaws for the rest of your life. Yeah. What if it's like Groundhog Day in the making of Jaws? You yeah. know, it's like... <laughs> uh, so I, I think that's really interesting. And, you know, there's a lot of things that happen between, you know, people who are here, um, you know, the, the, the cast of Jaws or the crew of Jaws stayed mostly at the Kelly house, a, a really nice hotel in Egertown um, at the 
time, it wasn't really nice. It was basically just getting by, and Jaws gave it the the boost financially to turn into a nice place. Um, but they would go to the local watering hole, the old Colonial Inn across the street. And so there's poker games with Richard Dreyfuss and Roy Scheider, and you know, um, it's just it was an interesting like bar environment of Hollywood people, and then the people from Martha's Vineyard who were helping them. So. Anyway, the story is that this six-episode docudrama that we want to work on got delayed by COVID, and we had this boat. I had the boat. I knew it. we were going to need an orca. You know, the half the film is on the orca, so if there's one prop that you need to make sure that you've got and you're ready to go with is to shoot a docudrama series, three of those episodes probably are going to take place on the orca if you're really being honorable to the material. Um, they spent 20 weeks at sea shooting the last half of Jaws. So there's a lot <laughs> yeah. of time on that Jaws, boat. Jaws is so insane. Like what a, the fact that it not only worked and it, it just turned into what it was, is like just even hearing some of these anecdotes is like, how did this, how did they, how did they do it? Uh, it's so crazy. I, I think what's incredible is that when you learn more about what happened and what they went through, not only are you surprised they finished the film, you're surprised that you got a film as good as Jaws. And I think that that sort of speaks to a real dedication to making the best of all the material you have and crafting it. And I think that, you know, Jaws was, you know, if Jaws was a carpentry project to build a table, there would have been, you know, three cords of wood chopped up into pieces uh, yeah. nearby. So, um, so funny. And, and, but it was a nice table when you were done. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, like against the odds, like most troubled productions, like films that have troubled productions don't turn out great. I think right. like the Masters of the Universe movie. And, <laughs> yeah, we were just watching that last night. Yeah. But yeah. Jaws <laughs> turned out to be I, But you're the first yeah. by the way, you're the first person to ever bring up the Masters of the Universe. I'm movie. looking at Castle Grey Skull right now. <laughs> In the middle of a Jaws I'm conversation. So sorry. Um, <laughs> so so now you so that's delayed indefinitely, that project because of COVID. Uh I believe that's what you're saying. And now you've kind of been able to pivot towards this new project where something new and exciting is born out of a, a situation you weren't expecting. Um, so that's amazing. So congratulations, first of all. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. And, yeah. It's, it's, it's exciting because I think that it, it's, it's one of these things where you take a, a friend of mine says, you know, when you get, when you have some pieces of chicken, you can make chicken salad. And you, when you have a situation where you don't have the best things, you know, sort of like having, you know, you got lemons make lemonade mm-hmm. right. and we ha- we have this boat and we know it's the type Chris Crawford, basically he vetted it with me that this is a boat that basically is designed in the same style as what the Orca was. And the style of boat is called a Novi or a Nova Scotia lobster boat is what they're really used for. And I like to describe them as like the tractors of the east coast of the Atlantic Ocean because okay. they are work boats. They basically are used to haul lobster traps. And for you to make them, uh, you know, you get a lobster license and you lay out a couple of moorings with traps. And that boat basically becomes the one that you just keep throwing traps off and pulling traps up and, you know, selling your lobsters to the local markets. And it is a living, you know, it's, it's ocean farming in many ways for these, uh, these, these guys. So the the boat was bought, the original boat was bought in um, Marblehead, Mass, North Shore, and was transported down to Martha's Vineyard to be worked on. And this boat was built, uh, was was bought in a similar area, North Shore, Boston. Um, But it's really just a type of boat that you can't get an exact duplicate of 
They're not a really, there's not a make and a model most of the time. They're built sort of like, uh, you know, a hay baler, you know, like you know how to basically do carpentry and you put a diesel engine in it and you put a bowsprit on it and a pulpit and all these things and you call it a lobster boat. And uh, so we found one that was close enough to the Orca and Chris came off the Mar- came off Martha's Vineyard. I picked him up. We went up to the boat, did a little inspection and said, yeah, this will do. The, the boat was actually not that expensive because the original owner had passed away from cancer while he was working on it his, as his sort of cabin cruiser that he wanted to retire in. And I, I learned the story of it through his son. And, uh, and, and it was really, his son was so thankful that what we were going to do with the boat because his dad loved Jaws. And it was such an incredible story to hear him say, I, I wish that my dad knew what you were doing with this boat. That's awesome. He would be unbelievably ecstatic. Um, and, and, and his, his widow basically was just really like, it, it felt like the right thing to do because she knew that he loved the movie too. That's awesome. Um, That's great. That's really cool. So, yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of personal stories in, in what I've been doing. That's really been unexpected and I welcome them, you know, because I, because I was in the film. And I'm a Martha's Vineyard native, and now I'm here working on this project. I feel very connected to the DNA of it too. You know, it's very much, you know, I've this is this is my childhood in many ways. So you know, it's uh, funny. We've been doing this podcast for four and a half years, and we've always talked about. I think you might be the first person in Jaws to be on. I, I'm racking my brain. I don't think Jake has anybody else that was in the movie been on the podcast. No, I don't think so. You know, there there have been a couple times where we've said like, hey, why aren't we getting there have definitely been times where we've talked about, you know, trying to get Carl and, and Joe on the show and stuff. But, yeah, we've definitely never had a cast member or, or a crew member yeah, on the so show. Congrats well, to us. We had John on. And, <laughs> and of course, John had nothing to do with the actual making of Jaws. But he's just I met John through Jaws. Like right, we're, right. We're, you know, being in the Jaws community. So it's as close as it's been. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Well, it's. It, it's funny because John and I, we've known each other for about five years now, but we both work for WGBH in Boston, the PBS station. And I had mentioned to someone, John and I didn't really know each other at the time, but I worked in the post-production area. I'm, I'm a colorist and online editor, uh, mastering shows for Frontline and Nova and, and other series that PBS does. And John is an archivist with, w, with Frontline. So they use us a lot. We're kind of, you know, we, our offices are right near each other. And I was talking to someone, somebody mentioned, oh, Jaws is going to be shown at a drive-in theater. This was five years ago. And I said, oh, when I was in that movie. I was a kid on the beach. You know, I lived there. And he goes, what? <laughs> Have you talked to John? Have you talked to John? John's like the biggest memorabilia collector in the country, practically. Um, and so I said, oh, no, uh, would you introduce us? And five minutes later, I get a knock on my door, and it's John with a section of the Orca 2's hall that he bought <laughs> yeah. from Susan Murphy. That sounds like John. That's yeah. so funny. Um, and he had a copy of the book, Memories from Martha's Vineyard, which uh, was signed, of course, by everybody, because he knows Jim Beller and Matt Taylor, the people who wrote that book. Yep. And and he came in, and he goes, I just heard about you're in Jaws. And I go, yeah, I was a kid in the, you know, in the Alex Kintner attack sequence. And he, he just like, he's like, I need to show you everything I have right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we, be, we became fast friends. And I think the funny anecdote I always like to tell is, you know, John and I got along great. You know, I, we started trading stories about stuff. But eventually I felt like, John, do you want me to sit in a glass case in your living room holding <laughs> a, a football 
Um, you know, like you can come over like, oh, and J- Dave was in Jaws and, and that's my It uh, costume. Um, so That's great. Part of the living collection. Well, when you're done with John, uh, you can, we'll keep you at Jake's house for a while because Jake has a pretty intense Jaws collection as well. Um, oh, yeah, cool. I, All right. I, well, I, I met John at that book signing for, for the Memories of Martha's Vineyard. So, Oh, at Jaws Fest here on the island. Yeah, at the they did they did the book signing, and then a couple of years later was uh, was the the Jaws Fest two that they did. So yeah, I, that, those are the two times that I've been there. Gotcha. Yeah, that was I actually I wasn't here. I was here in '05. I came briefly in '05 to see the first one, and I, I never came here for '12. They yeah, did it again five, in '12. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was a big one because they got everybody, you know, all the uh, I don't think Richard Dreyfus showed, but every, all the other actors pretty much showed up. Um, and Joe Alves and uh, Greg Nicotero came out uh, because he's mm-hmm. a huge fan of Joe's and is one of the biggest Jaws fans working in Hollywood today. Yep. Apparently, he has gigabytes of JPEGs. I mean, if you've got gigabytes of JPEG images, wow. you've got a lot of JPEG images. Yeah, that takes a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I'm getting so. I'm definitely watching Jaws tonight, and it'll only be the third time this month. So, um, so well, this is great. I mean, so now that leads to the project, right? So, Return of the Orca. You're gonna con- you you were gonna convert the boat anyways for this other project. Where does this new idea kind of spring up? Like, how long ago, and and what you know, what did that look like? How did how did you get from that to to this Indiegogo launch, which happened this week? Yeah, the uh, the story is basically that you know I had the boat here on the island. Chris has been generous enough to place it here on his property, what they call on the hard, you know, up on stilts. It's not in the water. It's basically sitting in a yard, ready to be worked on. But I, you know, when everything happened, he and I were trying to figure out, like, what do we do with this? Eventually, it needs to move from here. You know, it can't sit and take up a fixture on his lawn forever. And uh, I basically came down to trying to be, you know, I needed to think out of the box. I was like, okay, COVID is here. I don't know when it's going to end. I can't start shooting anything. Most people are, their productions are shutting down. And the making of Jaws is a fairly large scale project. There's no way I'm going to get this thing shot. Um, Not now and not for a little while. And and who knows when a vaccine shows up. So the boat is there. And then I just kind of start thinking about what, what I would do with it if I had the opportunity to make it really something special. And that's when I got the idea that we would, uh, I came around to coming to three missions. Okay. So there's three missions for this boat. Now the first mission we have a shark problem off of the coast of Martha's Vineyard and Cape Cod now. They're in the news regularly. And the uh, great white population that's here is growing because we have a seal population that is growing. And the water gets warmer thanks to climate change. And sharks love to come here and eat those little seal sausages all over the island. Yeah. So we basically and we we had one fatality two summers ago uh, a kid off of wellfleet was boogie boarding at at dusk at sundown and that's a really bad time to be in the water because sharks are fairly predatory when the the light is changing when it's getting dark or when the sun's coming up and so he was he was attacked bit in the leg and bled out on the beach and that was the first uh, fatal attack we had in the area in 80 years Whew. So, and we're lucky we haven't had any more since then, you know, knock on wood. But I felt that the boat should be, if we want to get this problem understood, and, and I've talked to Greg Skomel, he's kind of the Matt Hooper of Cape Cod. You know, he's on Shark Week all the time, and 
and uh, he really has a great understanding of what's going on with these these creatures uh, around the Cape and the islands. And he said, there's no changing this. This is the world we live in now. There's no getting rid of the sharks. The seals are here. They're federally protected. And so we need to, the only defense we have to really understand how to keep ourselves safe is education. We need to know what do these animals, you know, where do you go and not run into them? Where do you go and avoid swimming uh, because you see seals in the water? I was down here two weekends ago and I saw seven seals off South Beach in 40 minutes. So I was not going in the water. Right. Yeah, no well, way. you know that, right? Not right. everyone does. Right. But By the every, way, right, every, this is going... I was worried for a second that you're going to say that we're going to take care of this problem by rebuilding the orca and hiring a local fisherman to go take care of the sharks <laughs> and the seals. So I'm, I'm glad that this right. is the, the other direction. Right. No, this uh, this is a evolved purpose of the Orca 3. Cool. The evolution going from what Jaws was, and, and uh, I've spoken with Wendy Benchley, you know, the widow of Peter Benchley, and mm-hmm. and the, the, the film really created, I mean, the film was so successful that it also instilled people with a fear of sharks. And there was a lot of shark killing that happened after the 70s and 80s because of Jaws. And uh, Peter and Wendy eventually felt so responsible for that occurring that, um, uh, sorry guys, can you still hear me? Yeah. 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 Yeah, Okay. Um, that the, uh, the problem is that they needed to now do conservation work because they felt they had to sort of take back some of the things that were creating Jaws to be so successful and making people fear sharks. Mm. So, we very much want to be in the same effort. You know, we want to be able to say that, you know, we don't want there to be the killing of sharks. We want there to be the study of sharks. And I think it'll mean that people will be living in harmony with them. Hopefully that they'll understand more about them. They'll appreciate them for being the creatures they are. They're not malicious. They're doing what they do. Um, Most of the time they mistake people for seals and that's why people are attacked. They don't like, they're not man eaters. It's not their nature. People don't realize that sharks don't have, uh, you know, arms and hands and if they want to feel something to see what it is they got to use their mouth yeah right exactly it's a taste <laughs> test Curious. Really. yeah yeah um and and uh and and so usually a shark bites into a person and realizes it's not what it usually eats and goes away but unfortunately that 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 test bite is usually can be fatal mm-hmm. um so but we wanted the orca three to be that kind of a vessel so The idea was let's create the Orca 3 and let's basically stage research for sharks around Martha's Vineyard so that people can identify with the fact that we have the Orca 3 here doing it. And I think because of the publicity around making the the Orca itself and doing that shark research, people will actually be tuned into the education more. You know, they'll want to find out what it is that the Orca is learning. Um, Greg Skomel does all this work on regular Boston whalers at other center console powerboats off Cape Cod and people do listen to him. But I think in, you know, this putting him in the orca, which he's beyond excited to do, he can't wait to be out on the pulpit of that boat, like tagging sharks instead of shooting a harpoon gun. And he's really excited because he knows it'll get more people paying attention and we will be able to have kids. Uh, you know, learn about this stuff. That's mission two. What we want to do is take the orca, do the research part, and then also provide it as a place for uh, children on Martha's Vineyard to be able to come and learn about sharks because they're the ones who live with them all around their island. Yeah. Very cool. And free trips, free trips for kids to learn about sharks. And, and, you know, to me, 
I grew up here. Like, this is the thing I would have wanted as a kid. It's like right. a dream. You know? It's a dream. Well, I, I don't say this lightly. I've got some chills. Yeah. This is amazing. Like, this is so cool. Thank and you. I'm going to put it out there. I hope that the three of us are the first people to ever record a podcast on the Orca oh. <laughs> once it's ready to roll <laughs> yes. uh, out on the water and, and learning about sharks because like, um, sorry kids, sorry kids, to have some podcasts. Yeah, come. Sorry kids. The Orca's closed today. We're here. Um, no, because this, I, I completely agree with you. Like the fact, like, yeah, the, the fact that you could go on the Orca or see the Orca in Martha's Vineyard is amazing, but the educational opportunities mm-hmm. uh, are, I mean, that's, that's very noble and worthy. So that that's just so cool. I thank you. And, and I, I, I do feel really, you know, like this is what, this is the best use of this boat to me. It's really the best. Sure. It, it has the most impact. Mm-hmm. And uh, from the kids to the educational aspects of just doing the research and having a much more accurate depiction of what goes on off Martha's Vineyard, because Cape Cod is really the emphasis of Greg Skomel's studies right now. He spends a lot of time off the Cape. And it, because a lot of predatory behavior by great whites happens there, and there are seals all over the, the sandbars, but the vineyard has two islands off of it that a lot of people don't realize are also seal sanctuaries. Off the western, uh, southwestern area is a place called Nomans. It used to be a Navy uh, testing site where they would just run bombing missions and test, you know, uh, giving the pilots practice out of Otis Air Force Base. Uh, then it turned into the... Um, uh, a, a turns reserve. So now there's no embalming. They basically gave it to, to birds to be able to, you know, grow freely and not have to worry about people coming and traipsing across their nest. So, but now it's also got seals all over it that are there to, um, you know, sun themselves and, you know, enjoy what they do and, and eat, but sharks are attracted to them in that area. So it's only a few miles off the southern part of the vineyard. Another island called Muskegon Island is off the east end of Martha's Vineyard. And that island is the largest seal birthing nursery in the in the country. Mm. Like, there's no place that that has more births of seals than this. There are hundreds of thousands of seals on Muskegon Island. And so Greg says, "Listen, you're going to tell me that there's no great whites in the area where there's the most population of seal births happening? Um, there's definitely ones. And for some reason, they just haven't put enough sensors in this area for tracking them." Um, they're all over, you know, you can go to the app Sharktivity and Sharktivity shows you where the pings are, you know, where they, they actually pick up their, their, uh, GPS tags. But the reason he says they're not really seeing any off the Southern coast of Martha's Vineyard is because they didn't put any sensors out. It's all off the Cape. And I think that's something that we want to explore, use the Orca to really get a better accurate picture of that type of activity and understand really what's going on so that we know. You know, Chris Crawford actually used to swordfish off the vineyard, and he said they've run into great white sharks all the time, and that was decades ago. Uh, so they're there. Um, and the uh, so I think that this is the, the mission has a reason for being. It's mm-hmm. not just, hey, let's let's study sharks. It's more like we need to figure this out. This is not really we this isn't well known. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be something that is totally uh, useful mm-hmm. and has has a real will have an impact and, you know, get a real survey that people can say, OK, now we know what the situation is off the vineyard for sharks. Very cool. It's very fitting for it to be tracking and finding sharks off Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, well, the original purpose. Go for it, Jake. I just, you know, I just, I kind of just 
want to see if maybe you can promise me one thing that you will outfit the shark tags with tiny little yellow barrels, please. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, there's there's a lot of uh, that's a great suggestion. We've had a lot of ideas. One of them is actually instead of barrels off the bow that we would have yellow drones that we would launch to go and find (laughs) sharks with a live video. Oh, my God. 21st century Quint. OMG. Just operating a drone. (laughs) No, like Quint just like I could just imagine Quint being so annoyed at something like that on his boat. (laughs) Get that thing off here. Robots and what are you, some kind of half-ass astronaut? Exactly. <laughs> That's his only line he ever uses. It works every time. Um, I don't know what the shark would do. Maybe eat it. <laughs> yeah, drone goes so, in the sky. There's a, a third. There's a third mission, we and the third stop. mission is the most obvious one people want, which is yes, we need to do Jaws tours. We need to take out Jaws fans to experience being on the Orca, and because my first two missions for the boat are basically charitable. We need something that actually has a cash flow to it so that we can keep the boat doing the, the good stuff it does. Right, right. for sure. Um, you know, uh, as they say in the boating world, a boat is a hole in the water you throw money into. Right, right. And, the, uh, and some boaters, uh, one of the, the, another axiom that people have used is, you know, what's the two happiest days in a boater's life? The day you buy the boat and the day you sell the boat. Right. Because it's, you're so excited to have it. And then it was it's such a money suck that you realize, well, I really need to, if I don't want to just have this thing sitting and taking my money, I need to sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. that's the, that's really the round out experience that we want it to be. And I think that we can fit all three in, you know, we can certainly kids in the morning, you know, take them out for a morning, uh, whether they're starting summer camp or something and researchers that they don't need every day on the boat, you know, they'll come out for a number of different times throughout the summer but they're largely going to want to do a, a couple expeditions. And then the Jaws tours, you know, as people come to the island and check out the locations, they will be able to finish their day off with a sunset cruise to go out and be on the Orca and, you know, be, have that experience. And I think that's really cool to, you know, have that because all, that's all what a lot of people are asking for with this Indiegogo campaign is they want to be able to ride the boat when it's finally done. And part of the Indiegogo is, is giving discounts to people who, when they get here, they'll be able to get out on the boat for a reduced price and uh, enjoy, you know, I think a, there's there's no place better than the vineyard to be on the Orca. And I think that's what everybody would agree on. So there's really, you know, it, it'll be the best experience that we can possibly make for trying to relive what it's like to be in Jaws. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it sounds much better than a like a seaplane tour of the Bahamas with uh, Michael Caine. <laughs> Uh, I think this is awesome. I think that, so t- let's talk about the Indiegogo specifically, because I think, um, a lot of our listeners are going to, obviously we're going to back this project. We fully support mm-hmm. it. We will help you guys in any way that we can. Um, but can you talk about some of the perks and some of the benefits you guys are offering? Uh, and I, I should say return of the orca.com. Uh, you can link directly to the Indiegogo and we'll, we'll have it up on all of our social media accounts as well. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. The, we're we, we're so excited about what we got to offer people. The so the beginning perks are you know if you just basically want to be thanked and acknowledged for supporting the orca, you can give us ten dollars, and uh, we'll we'll make sure you get a, a a thank you for that. And and obviously it's you know we want there to be people that even if they don't have a lot of money, COVID has taken a lot of jobs. Um, it's changed uh, so many people's lives for you know for the worst in some ways, right. and we're completely aware of that. So. 
we don't need you to come in and we don't want to sell you a $60 t-shirt. <laughs> it's not the, it's not part of the plan. Right. Um, so we have the beginning levels that you basically can give us a small amount and still be, you know, we, our campaign is what we call come aboard. And that's the support that you're giving. You get to come aboard the Orca by giving whatever you can give. If you want to give the next level up, we're getting into now beautifully designed logos by Eric Hollander. Eric Hollander was the director of the shark is still working mm -hmm. and he's a graphic artist. And he created a beautiful logo for us of Return of the Orca. And that logo is so admired right now on the Indiegogo campaign that we are selling T-shirts of it. We have posters. We're going to have uh, posters that are in the same size and design as the original Jaws poster. But it's going to be a Return of the Orca poster. And for certain people who get those posters in a premium bundle, it will be signed by Joe Alves and Eric Hollander. So there's going to be some really cool collectibles in there. Um, beyond that, we're looking at things like windbreakers and hats with the logo and so forth. You know, if you want to be out on the water and you want a nice windbreaker, it'll be great to be able to say, I've got a return to the Orca windbreaker on. Um, so, uh, and then we get into things like our bundles. Oh, uh, sorry. And also one other thing, we are creating a documentary of the build of the boat. It'll be return of the Orca, the documentary. And so you can get that. Uh, and order that ahead of time so that we can basically, you can see the way it went, you know, how did the build go and what were the challenges and when did it start to look like the Orca and the launch and the testing of the boat, um, all that good stuff about what it takes to actually do this kind of a project. And also talk to some of the people around here who are excited to see it be created and what it's going to do for the, the, you know, the locals and, you know, create some really cool stuff for the kids. So the Return of the Orca documentary DVD, uh, it'll be a Blu-ray. I'm actually, because I work in entertainment, I'm planning on shooting it in 4K if I can and doing probably an ultra-high-def version because the vineyard's a beautiful place. Right. Mm -hmm. And to get get a you know 24 frame per second version of the vineyard in ultra-high-def, is it's just gorgeous. It's a, it's a land, it's not Detroit, let's put it that way. It's the vineyard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so sorry, Detroit. I don't yeah. mean to slam Detroit. No, it's we fine. all know it's fine. That'll be amazing. for the RoboCop documentary. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we have our bundles. We have uh, our larger bundles. We have a Mako Shark, a Tiger Shark, and finally the Bruce bundle. And those are going to be the higher ticket items that, if you want to be part of really getting your name on this orca, you can literally be part of the Bruce bundle, and we'll make a plaque that is thanking the top supporters of the campaign that will be inside the cabin house of the Orca 3, and your name will forever be on that boat. Um, and, uh, and you'll get some of these signed posters and so forth, uh, discounts on the actual ride, uh, discounts on um, other aspects of what our perks are. Um, you know, it's a really full package that people, there's been a couple of them sold. I'm kind of, I've been really impressed, really early out of the gates. A couple of Bruce bundles went, and I was really like, wow, these people are really, they, somebody has the money to be on the Orca at some point, yeah. and they want their name on it. Well, so, you know, I mean, Jake, what, I mean, if you're a diehard yeah. Jaws fan, like, this is almost like the ultimate collectible. Like, it's, for one thing, the, the first, the Orca doesn't exist anymore, and I think, you know, that might be common knowledge, like, the, the, the boats made for the movies, just they're not around. So this is going to be the only one. It's going to be, at, you know, on Martha's Vineyard, giving Jaws tours, I want my name in the in the cabin of the boat. Yeah, like, that's, that's, like, are you a real yeah, fan? Right. Then do it. Yeah, I would like to challenge all of our listeners to the Bruce Bundle. I myself might. That's very cool. 
Oh, that's great, guys. No, I, 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 I totally appreciate the fact that I think there are fans of the movie who really who look at that as probably a worthwhile investment for something that for a long time they will be able to say, you know, I'm going to go back to the vineyard in a couple of summers. Maybe they don't even live close by. They're from Ohio or California. But they can come back out to the vineyard and see the boat and know their names on it and enjoy the fact that they were one of the people who helped make it, yeah, you know, yeah. that they can claim that they're, they, they were part of this. And they were part of something that's not just a tourism boat for enjoying as Jaws fans, but is actually doing things that, you know, the, like the, the things that we want to do with it that are going to you can feel good about, right. you know, that you can feel like are, are making a difference in some people's lives. And that's what I think is so great about it is it's not just a tribute to the film. It's a tribute to making the film evolve for the, you know, our culture in a way that can actually be useful. Yeah. So um, yeah. we're, you know, we're, we're really excited about it. The campaign only launched on Saturday. We've, you know, gotten a good start and we got picked up by the Associated Press who ran us in the New York Times, the Washington Post. I mean, we're, we're getting right. a lot of traction right now. Right. And I think it's because it's not just because the project is neat. I mean, it is a neat project. I, I, I have to admit, I like it. I've been behind it for the whole time it started. <laughs> um, but it, it is also during a time when we are so challenged by negative news of COVID and the election and racial unrest and all these things that are, you know, it, it's funny because Jaws came out of a period in the 70s when the Vietnam War was ending. And we were just a few year, years after 1968 and, and the, the challenges of the civil rights movement going on. And it's, you know, it, we, we feel, you know, I talked to my dad about it and he's like, it does feel kind of like 1968 again in some of these challenges we have. And he goes, and we lived through it. So people shouldn't be too down about it. There is another side to it, but it certainly is something where people could use a, a feel good story and, you know, think that there's something they can do to make things better. And I'm just hoping that Return to the Orca is one of those stories. Yeah, it's good fun for a good purpose. I yeah. can get behind that. Plus, like, I mean, Jake, we're collectors. You're you're the biggest Jaws fan I know. Like, just I'd mm -hmm. love to hear your your kind of your gut reaction to the to the uh, the project as a whole. Well, I mean, it's just it it, it literally is like I, I've talked about it before on the show. Like going when when Jaws is your very favorite movie, and then you go to Martha's Vineyard and see how it is basically unchanged, and you can see basically every location and people you know meet people that still live there and now the fact that on top of that it's like oh also there's the orca like it, uh, i mean in, in my future am i going to go to martha's vineyard and get to see a replica of the orca leave from quince shack where quince shack used to stand yeah probably i'm going to do that and it's going to probably make me cry <laughs> and it's just like it is on top of the fact that like animal conservation is something that is very that I you know I care very much about so like on top of the fact that it's like doubling down on oh it's two of it's two of the things you probably care about the most right yeah yeah there's like nothing better than that I love it I, I've wow. never heard I've never heard it summed up in that way and you're you're actually about to make me cry <laughs> we're all gonna cry good oh I, hey Jake, I gonna... tell him about your barrel come on <laughs> tell him about the barrel. Well, I got a barrel. We got a barrel. Got a production barrel. And I'm officially <laughs> announcing just a Jaws barrel. Just a Jaws barrel. I am like, officially out, not going to spend a thousand dollars on a Richard Dreyfus cameo message, and I'm going to put it towards the Indiegogo <laughs> campaign. Yeah, because I think that's a. I think it's more worthy. More worthwhile. For, you know, for sure. Hey, you know what? We've had the wow. R Richard Dreyfus is um, 
I, I think he's come around in the last couple of years. He seems a little bit more open and receptive to talking about Jaws in a positive manner. And uh, I don't know. I'd, I'd love to see uh, him step on the Orca and see uh, see what see what that looks like. Maybe that could be happening down the road. You know, if you guys are picking up this much traction, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see some cool stuff like that. I just want to I just want to come down in my Quint outfit and just get on that boat. <laughs> yeah, we know. <laughs> we know, Jake. Absolutely. Well, I do. Yeah. What, you well, might do um, it. Uh, Richard really asked a thousand dollars on cameo. Is that really what he asked? Yeah, it's a thousand bucks. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So here's my pie in the sky. Perfect. And and you, you know the Jaws fan in the room, you you back me up if you feel like this is one of the most perfect situations ever because I've thought about this and my dream is that when we have the boat in the water and we're doing a maiden voyage that we have Richard Dreyfus aboard on the crow on the uh, not on the crow's nest sorry on the flying bridge you know like he was in the film mm-hmm. and standing next to him is the son of robert shaw ian oh, shaw ian yeah. and the son of roy scheider christian scheider wow. and those two go out with with dreyfus into the sunset of benumptia harbor and we just hopefully get richard to cry the yeah. whole way out yeah i'm <laughs> crying listening to you Talk wait what if it. hey this would be amazing but also be a huge bummer for everybody involved is it, it set sail and then nobody heard anything for like a day and then the three of them come swimming back without the orca <laughs> like what happened <laughs> what happened out there i would pass i would i would pass out if i saw that happen that yeah. that I, that's definitely the dream. Yeah. Well, I would I would want them to go out in the boat and just anchor it and spend all night, you know, singing, uh, you know, oh, uh, farewell sure. and adieu or or yeah. I show me the way to go home. Yeah. Drinking whiskey inside the orca cabin, and that's that's <laughs> what. How else could you spend a night on the orca except if you're Richard Dreyfus, you do that. That's you know. What you tear get. gets us into that? Yeah. What, <laughs> all of these actual tears. Oh, like we've moved on from T E. You know, we're on the T E A R S here. I can um, imagine. I, I'm imagining like Steven Spielberg having like the uh, you know the Twilight Zone effect. If he sees the boat, he'll probably like have a like get it away from it. You know, right, like, right. The, <laughs> so the memories of you know day 300 filming probably come back to yeah, him. And funny. Well, it's interesting that Steven. There's an interview with him from a couple of years back with Entertainment Weekly, and he gave he was in a golf cart with this uh, re- reporter from Entertainment Weekly, and they went by the back lot lake. On uh, Universal Studios, and they said, you know, Stephen says, "Oh, by the way, over there, they used to be the Orca. The real Orca was there because they somebody bought the Orca from Universal Studios after the filming was done. I think he spent the uh, uh, six thousand, seven thousand dollars for it, and then the studio learned they actually had a blockbuster hit on their hands, and they said, can we have the boat back?' And he said, "Certainly, it's twenty times the cost that I bought it for, <laughs> and they paid it, and." So um, and then Stephen says that, you know, what he would do for a couple of years or maybe, I don't know how long it went on. But when he would go, he was, you know, he uh, Amblin had their offices on Universal's lot and his offices were set up not too far from the Orca. And Stephen said that he would come up to the Orca on his golf cart and go sit on it and just shake as a means of dealing with the trauma of working on Jaws, which to this day, he says is still the most traumatic, difficult experience in filmmaking he's ever had. Wow. So the, it was, it was his, it was his confessional. It was his, whatever it was, it was a place that he basically needed to work out what his trauma was on shooting Jaws. And it was the place that he would do that. And they got rid of it because it was dry rotting and, and it was, 
falling into that lake. It was going to sink on its own. And somebody just decided to chop it up. And that's why we don't have any orcas in the world anymore, because it just was neglected. Yeah. And yeah. that's not going to happen to the Orca 3. We're this this toy is going to get polished pretty regularly. And we're going to you know make sure it lasts a good long time. Yeah, I will come clean the boat. <laughs> Every night. <laughs> um, well, David, man, this is great. Uh, this was a really fun conversation. Um, we are, like I said, we're, we're fully in support of this project. I think it, it it's very layered, everything from just the, a general movie enthusiast or, uh, if you're a prop collector or you're a fan of Jaws or like animal yeah, activists. Yeah. If like Jake talked about, if you're, if animal, you know, conservation or studying sharks, like, I feel like you guys, this hits a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of positive nerves, right? This will get people, uh, excited in a lot of different ways. I'm really happy that, uh, that you're doing it. I think, it, I think it's an awesome project. Thank you very much. I, I think that we're the, the response we're getting to people learning about what we're doing in this boat has been the ultimate vindication that it's the right thing to do. And uh, because I'm a vineyarder and I know what this community, how it can impact the community, I just feel good about what it's going to do for people that I still know here and kids that I, you know, I was a kid here too. I know what it's like to grow up on this island. And so, yeah, I think it, you know, it's great. It's it's going to be great. I think everybody's going to really find anything about the aspects of this boat existing is going to be something really incredible. And so if people can go to returnoftheorca.com and please help us out, we'd love to be able to have you come aboard and be part of this project um, and take pride in knowing you're doing it. No matter what you're, if you feel like you can give, um, everybody can help out in whatever way that there is possible. So uh, that's what we're hoping for. And I, I really thank you guys for having me on board for this, uh, this talk. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. and, and what we'll do is, um, you know, a little bit down the road, once you guys are, you know, either into the funding or into the, the making of, we, we'd love to have you back to, to get some updates and hear, uh, hear how things are going. This is definitely a project uh, we're invested in. Great. Yeah. Let, let me know when you like me back. I mean, we're, the, the plan is to basically, as long as things sort of move along the way we're hoping that uh, mid-August to late August, we'll be starting on the actual construction. And that'll take about six to eight weeks. So we'll be talking about like a mid-October to late-October finish of the project, hopefully. Oh, wow. And then we'll be getting it in the water probably early November for testing and wow. so forth. And then it'll need to come out of the water to be ready. Uh, you know, it'll get winterized. And uh, the, the following Memorial Day weekend or whenever we decide it's going to be good to put it back in the water, that's when it'll actually get into operations and start doing what it's supposed to do. So there's a, there's a little while to wait, but um, you know, we've got the time, we've got the, the right crew, Joe Alves and Chris Crawford. And, and so the, everybody will be able to see, you know, what we're doing. Matter of fact, one of the perks is the video production diary, and we'll be sending you little glimpses of what's going on during the production. And sometimes we'll be doing it live. So you can see as the boat gets some of its main features, like the flying bridge and the pulpit and the crow's nest. Oh, very and tight. So people will be able to see it coming together. And then finally, the end result, you'll see the boat all in one piece looking like the Orca. So that's, we're really excited to be able to kind of roll that out over time while the build is happening. Yeah, that'll be satisfying to watch for sure. Yeah, I'm excited. Well, yeah. David, man, thanks. Uh, on behalf of Jake and Abigail, I really appreciate your time. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely have you back on to talk about the project. And we'll probably want to have you back on just to share a bunch of stories of what yeah, it was. Yeah, Jake might be calling you later just to keep talking <laughs> yeah, about yeah, stories. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll probably be at Nancy's on Oak Bluff Harbor enjoying a drink. So uh, it'll be a good time to get me. All right. That sounds good. That Enjoy. sounds good. Uh, David Bigelow, Return of the Orca. We're going to uh, see this through. We're going to make this thing come to life. And uh, 
uh, all of our guests have some listeners. Uh, I encourage you to go to the Indiegogo campaign, give what you can. And uh, I know there's some enamel pins too. And I know a lot of our people are pin enthusiasts. So that'd be a good tier to get in on. Um, and uh, David, have a, have a wonderful night. Good luck with everything. And we'll, we'll catch up down the road. Thanks so much guys. Yeah. Really great to meet you all. all have right. a good night. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Bye-bye. Enjoy your drink. All right. Take care. <laughs> yeah. No, he I'm, was awesome. I just want to go right now. Yeah. Dude, I know. That's something to look I forward be on to. The boat. My mood changed talking to David. He was, I am so excited about this project. And I'm, it was really fun just hearing those stories. That's cool that he was in the movie. All that shit. All that know? stuff. It's really um, cool. Jake, were you familiar with David at all before him uh, coming on? No, not really. I, I had seen his name here and there, but I, I was not very familiar with him. I did not know he was in the movie or anything like that. Yeah, it's a really cool project, and uh, yeah, like I said, we'll, we'll post everything. Um, the interview went a little bit longer than we were expecting, so we'll, we'll push the fuck budget to next week, but there's a couple uh, couple topics we do have to talk about. First of all, the Windy City Ghostbusters last week did this Ghostbusters charity trivia challenge with mm-hmm. a bunch of special guests. One of them was us. And Ernie Hudson, Jason Reitman, Eric Reich, Ivan Reitman. It was a really amazing thing. And I just want to congratulate them. Uh, all, all told over $6,000 raised for yeah, charity. It turned into like a telethon as like, cause it was just uh trivia and yeah. then people just continued to pledge more and more. And it was really cool to see happen live. And we stayed up really late actually to like do a check in and buy the end of it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it was good. It was good stuff. What, wait, but I I now want there to actually be a Ghostbusters telethon. Yeah. You know, like a legitimate telethon? And where we like, are you know, the like entertainment? In, uh, you know, like in UHF, they have to have the telethon. Yeah. And then they right. bring out, like, people to do entertainment and shit while yeah. you... That's what I want. Yeah. I want a Ghostbusters-themed telethon and Ghostbuster community folks doing, like talent show type yeah, stuff for like 24 it hours sounds like it will be the weirdest funnest thing that we had ever done well imagine dan wow. Aykroyd hosting that like dan Aykroyd hosts yeah, yeah. and he's just is it, a great idea hi everybody welcome to the ghostbusters charity telethon i'm dan Aykroyd, and tonight's entertainment is abigail gardner juggling hot juggle? dogs and hot dog <laughs> juggling hot I'm juggling dogs? hot dogs okay cool it's ghostbusters theme um no that was great that was a really cool event we were happy to take part uh and congratulations to everybody uh who raised six thousand dollars and also one toy for a child of their choice oh <laughs> uh, congrats to that child congrats to that child <laughs> um and uh I like the way the Yes Have Some podcast used to be. I'm, oh, I'm salty you're talking now. about OG classic? Yeah. Hey, by the way, I'm, I'm, I need to get on this Orca. I need to fi- find out what tier puts me on that boat the Bruce, like immediately. The bundle? Hey, hey, I'll give you a hint. It's expensive. <laughs> it's really expensive. <laughs> yeah. The Bruce bundle is barge level. It's I, a barge I was going to explain the barge oh, to him. It's but super barge level. Yeah. Um, I like the idea. They should have had one extra level called the barge level, and I don't know. I don't know what the prize. Oh, I would tried. Be. I was going to explain that to him, but I thought that might be. <laughs> Let too me explain much. you what a barge. What's about the barge? Um, but to kind of cap that off, thank you so much to everybody who participated in the Ghostbusters charity trivia challenge. That was a lot. Um, we kind of th- listen. The four yes have some's never stuck to any kind of real format. We're all over the place. We talked about toys a little bit at the beginning. We didn't really get into the NECA stuff. Let's push that to next week because I do think we're going to have Trevor from NECA 
coming back either next week or the following week. We're going to need him to because there's too much Nekatoys. It's like we need a human checklist to <laughs> we need Trevor. help us go through everything. We need a guy. We're going to need a Trevor. Um, but I do want to talk about uh, the big news that was revealed today, which is the San Diego Comic-Con would have been exclusive. Ghostbusters Plasma Series, Lewis Tully, uh, what's it called? Tully's Terrible Night? Tully's Terrible Evening? Um, Tully's Night Terror? <laughs> no, Tully's Terrible Night. It's a box set with Lewis Tully and a terror dog. I was really surprised because I did not think we were getting any new Ghostbusters stuff from uh, Hasbro. I, th- I just figured everything was pushed until next year. Um, but I really like this box set. I think it's great. Um, I think... I was a little bit surprised because I thought maybe Lewis Tully would just be a mainline release, but doing it this way in like a cool, almost like a, like you're going to have to get two because you need the, um, you need one on display in the package and then you're going to need one loose. And I don't know. I was just, I was excited to wake up to like Ghostbusters toy news. Jake, there's nothing better than that. Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, it's like we, we, it's definitely been like, a little bit like Christmas with all the new Ghostbuster toys we've been getting. And it's like, I just completed, you know, the plasma collection. And it's like, you know, that stuff is like, it's still very fresh. And you think like, okay, plasma came out. This came out. Like you just said, we're thinking you're probably not going to, it's going to be a couple months before we, we get the next push. And I definitely wasn't thinking we would get a next wave of plasma collection stuff for a while. So like to just all of a sudden be like, Oh, here's a box set. Right. Yeah, that's very cool. With well, a brand new product in it, that's really that's surprising. Yeah, I just feel bad. You know what? I don't feel bad, but like you kind of feel bad for the people who bought two uh, plasma series to have two terror dogs. Yeah. <laughs> well, so there was a little bit of discussion on whether or not this terror dog included with Lewis Tully is the same one as the build a figure. It's a little bit hard to tell because of the pictures. Obviously, the main difference in the two terror dogs, Zul and Vince Clortho, is like the horns, <laughs> but. Oh. I don't know if it's the same one or not, but I'm sure even if it is the same one, they're gonna you're gonna have both at some point. Like Hasbro, you know, Jake, I was talking about it took Maddie Collector like five years to just have the four Ghostbusters and Lewis Tully. We never got Terror Dogs. The Dana was a hard to get exclusive and there was never a Gozer figure. And in like six months, we've gotten all that from this line. We got it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We got it all. And it all looks pretty great. Yeah, it's pretty damn great. Did you ever find that Egon? You were looking um, for Egon, right? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got it all. We got it it's all. Ev- it, it's, it's everywhere now. Yeah, you can find it. You can find it. Um, yeah, it's just exciting. So congrats to... Uh, every- it's not on sale yet. It's I don't know who I'm congratulating, by the way. <laughs> Congratulations. Congratulations. Eric. For owning another uh, Ghostbusters toy. Well, I just love these figures. Like, I'm in my toy room right now, and I'm just, just yeah, knowing... In awe. Here's the thing. Yeah, they're, let, let's face it. Let's go ahead and speculate. You're going to be able to get both Terror Dogs, and they're going to do all of these... Like, this line has... We don't know what we're going to get. This line has so much potential. Yeah. Like, they could go on and on and on. Well, and, I mean, it's it, it, it has the same potential that, you know, even though we, we can talk about all the negatives of the Maddie, you know, uh, collector series, but... The one thing that the Maddie Collector series did is it it literally gave us like four variants of every single like there's ton there's like what thirty something different figures yeah and there's no reason why um, the plasma collection 
can't do the exact same thing, but like, you know, with like better molds. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, cause you got just, you've got Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters two, Ghostbusters afterlife, Ghostbusters, the video game. And if it follows the trend of black series or Marvel legends, then everything's on the table, including comic books and the real Ghostbusters and extreme Ghostbusters. Like I, I really hope people are out there supporting this line because it's definitely, um, the dream scenario. Plus we're getting props. Like, you know, there's, we already, the, the, the Spangler one isn't even out yet. You know, there's gonna be a trap, you know, there's gonna mm-hmm. be a PKE meter. God damn it. I'm getting excited mm-hmm. between the Orca and Ghostbusters. I'm freaking the fuck out over here. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's uh, nice. It's great. It's nice to get some good news. I know it feels like, yeah, yeah it's, it's refreshing. Um, so I just feel good about everything. I feel good. Um, I, I really liked having David on the show tonight. I love that we got some new Ghostbusters toys coming and we didn't even cover everything we wanted to cover, but that's fine because there's always next week on Yes, I Have Some Podcast. Absolutely. Um, Abigail, did you have any final thoughts this evening? No, I really want to get Yes, Have Some's name on the Orca. I really want to donate and get that to happen. Let's do it. Yeah, let's we do know it. we need to start our own Indiegogo to raise money so we could get our name. We need to... <laughs> yes um get it started now yes yes um by the way i i meant to say this earlier i should go ahead and let our listening audience know i partnered up with our friends at the gb containment unit you know the autograph group they sat down for a signing with steve johnson who's the vfx uh creator on ghostbusters who um did slimer mostly famous for slimer designed slimer he could you imagine being the guy who designed Slimer. Like, yeah, I made that. Um, but anyways, uh, it was a great interview. I'm going to actually tag it at the end of this episode. So there's more to come. I sat down with Steve Johnson, with uh, Matt Sanders and Tom Henry from the containment unit. And don't forget, they are doing amazing work over there doing those autograph signings. Uh, if you want awesome, authentic Ghostbusters autographs for uh, really good prices and really unique pieces, uh, make sure you join their Facebook group. And uh, that'll be coming up after we wrap up here. Uh, Jake, any uh, any final thoughts? Are you watching uh, First Class tonight? What are you doing? Dude, I don't know. I, I pr- Maybe Jaws. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to yeah, watch Jaws. Yeah, at this point, yeah. Pretty sure we're watching Jaws. Um, I, I thought my Jaws the Revenge joke was pretty good. <laughs> I did too. I liked it. It was a, it was a good deep cut, yeah. I couldn't think of Michael Caine's name for a second. I, I was just thinking Caine is a Caine. Dean Kane, Kane the wrestler. Who is it? Uh, Michael Kane. Um, well, cool, everybody. Well, super excited. Love talking Jaws. It's hot as fuck out. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Yeah. Um, for Abigail Garden. Stay safe. Jacob Walsh. Wash your hands. We'll see you next week. Stay positive. Also, the virtual San Diego Comic Cons this weekend, so maybe we'll have some uh, news and trailers and things. Maybe we'll find out how the fuck we're watching Bill and Ted because nobody knows if it's going to yeah. be. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no one knows if it's going to be at home or anything. All right. Um, quick break. Listening to me advertising more. Yes, I have some related things. And then the Steve Johnson interview. And uh, we'll send you on your way. For Abigail Gardner, Jacob Walsh, my name's Craig Goldberg. Bye. Peace. Bye, guys. Uh, hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we are joined today uh, by someone that we all uh, appreciate very much. Uh, Steve Johnson, FX legend. If you are a Ghostbusters fan and if you're watching this, you are, you know, this man and his work. Uh, welcome, Steve. How's quarantine going for you over there? Hey, how are you guys? Um, how do you think it's going? <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, Not we, great. We, we went, but thank God I got my haircut uh, because I went four months without a haircut. And my God, Bozo called. He needs his hair back by five. You're okay. <laughs> 
It looked so <laughs> fucking awful. And, you know, even though nothing's open, I, when, the, when the hair salon's open, I finally rushed down, got my hair cut. Um, because, you know, even if nobody else is going to see me, except on things like this, I see myself in the mirror all the time and I look like shit for four fucking months. So I went and got my hair cut, thank God, <laughs> because now all the hair salons are shut down again and everything's shut down again. And, you know, I'm not, I've become over the years, not nearly as, particularly since I've been writing a lot, not nearly as social as I used to be, but still it wasn't like this. <laughs> it's like, you just, you just, can't, I mean, nobody is really stopping you from doing things, but except for yourself, but I, I've had it. I can't take it anymore. And in a way, I almost understand all these people, but, and I'm not one of them. I mean, I wear my mask and maintain social distancing and don't see friends, but uh, I can kind of understand why people have finally cracked over this. Because, oh yeah. You know, we're human beings, we're pack animals and you need to hug people and you need to be around people and fuck. But you know, I do have this little guy. Oh, cool. Oh, there he is. <laughs> he doesn't want to. He hates it. <laughs> He's my Hemingway writing buddy. Cool. Uh, so, yes, that, that's how it's going. And, you know, on top of everything else, the film industry is. And I'm glad we're talking about this because, you know, Ghostbusters at this point, um, it's like the Civil War. It's like, how much more can you say about it? <laughs> everything that's been said about the civil war yeah. and all the books are going to there's nothing else to say. So let's talk about something other than ghostbusters. How do you think your fans will like that? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> it is funny. We, we notice like there's like one or two new ghostbusters documentaries that comes out, you know, per year. And basically you can kind of <laughs> quote everybody's anecdotes and stories at this point. Uh, <clears throat> But more, I know, you know, you know, I go to conventions and, you know, I wonder how many people have sat in these audiences when I'm speaking and they ask Ghostbusters questions. How many people are like, Jesus Christ, he's like your senile great grandmother who tells you the same story over and over again, <laughs> which has always amazed me. Because if you're uh, if you're around a woman or a man that tells the same story over and over again, sometimes people react in the following way. They'll like, Jesus fucking Christ. And start to roll their eyes and go, God damn it, grandma. But the thing that's so rude about that to me is because to the person that's senile, it's the first time they've ever told that story. And then all their family members are reacting with hatred and boredom. It's like, why did my family get so mad at me? <laughs> Telling them a good story. That's funny. We've heard the story 20 times, grandma. Right. That's good. Yeah, yeah, we tried to. We. Oh, go ahead, Craig. No, I was just. I was the most famously, we joke about it all the time is when Ivan Reitman tells the story of uh, his guys coming down, you know, Fifth Avenue with their packs on, and him having shivers go up his spine. It's like we know about the shivers. We've been hearing about him for thirty six <laughs> years. We know about him. I know, and you know, one of the other problems is when you when you get used to doing you know public appearances about you know it's not just Ghostbusters. <laughs> it's all the you know it's a good. good my abyss stories, my, uh, all the stories on the bigger movies that I've done, you, you, you learn them and you learn a kind of a comedic rhythm to them. And, and particularly since I've written the series of books, the Rubberhead series, it's like they're your fallback because you, you, they're, they're easy to flow into that rhythm. And it's like, what happened to all the other stories? It's just, and that's another really funny thing about memory. And it's a really funny thing about writing down your memory is that, you know, obviously in my book series in Rubberhead, <clears throat> it's set in present tense. It's like you're a fly on the wall. So, you know, the conversations are happening and everything's happening in real time. So I had to elaborate. I had to 
nudge the truth a little bit to make the, you know, to draw the reader in and make it appear to be more fiction. Um, but what happens as a result of that is after you've read your own work a hundred times at least, which is, you know, when in the editing process, you have to, something happens and you don't remember if what you wrote is the true version or if there's some other version out there that really is the truth. <laughs> You know, because I don't know. Did you guys read Rubberhead One, the Ghostbuster story? I, I was listening to the audio book, and I loved how at the beginning of it, you just kind of gave that warning. This is the the stories to the best of my knowledge, and over time, and things. That <laughs> know, and, but I'm going to tell them to you like I know them. Yeah, well, I'll give you a hint. the The ghost of John Belushi did not actually show up that night and model for me. That's great. Yeah, that's an interesting dovetail. I had a question, a clarifying question about the, the actually the Belushi thing. So it, maybe it comes down to memory, but I've heard two different versions about the the story you tell about uh, how overnight you had to make it more John Belushi than it was. Right. So I heard the story that you did, um, and then that's what you presented. And then the other story was that you didn't make it more John Belushi. You took it in, you're like, yeah, here it is. It's John Belushi. And they were like, fantastic. This is great. Yeah. Well, the second version is the truth. <laughs> there's, there's no way I could have over, over yeah yeah it could have completely reworked that sculpture in, in the period of one night and that's you know something that a lot of really good designers in this industry know unfortunately um, is that uh, when your art director or your producer or your production designer or your director comes in and says make these changes make these changes more often than not if you don't make them they'll come back and go that's right that's exactly what I was looking for it happens all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy absolutely crazy so uh let, let's go real quick um for those who don't know how did you get started in the film industry were you always a creative as a, as a child like what brought you to hollywood as a kid i was always creative i came out of the womb wanting to create things actually i can't remember a time when i didn't want to make things so you know i discovered hammer and uh, you know the hammer classics the, the horror films and the classic universals and I just became incredibly enamored by it and started trying to figure out on my own in the, in the 60s in Texas, which was quite difficult because there were no schools like the Stan Winston School of Character Arts. There were no books on it. So I just had to figure it out by trial and error. Um, and the turning point was when I think I was 15 or 16, I met Rick Baker. He came to one of the first science fiction and horror conventions ever in Houston, Texas. I think it was called, uh, I don't know what it was called, but uh <laughs> Um, and he spoke. He had just finished King Kong and Star Wars and the Incredible Melting Man, and I had a little thin portfolio. See, I'm telling the same story I tell all the time. I'm sure you guys have heard <laughs> I had a little thin portfolio, and I worked up the nerve to meet him. And uh, he gave me his phone number and said, listen, if you ever come out to California, I'll, you know, I'll see what I can do. And so as soon as I was 18, I got in my car and drove out there and knocked on his door, and he said, who the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> I love how that happens. That's great. But ultimately, you know, I wasn't good enough. I didn't, you know, I hadn't practiced professional techniques at that point. So <clears throat> this was 1978. So he introduced me to both Greg Canham and Rob Bottin, who I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know. I cut my teeth on their projects for the first couple of years before Rick hired me on American Werewolf in London. And that was like the first big movie I did, actually. Cool. Steve, I have a question. Is it, you, you've you've had this career that, you know, has stretched multiple decades and you've seen a lot of different versions of what works in Hollywood and what doesn't. And specifically over the past five or 10 years, you kind of have this notion that going back to more practical effects and more, you know, being a little bit less dependent 
on uh, CG or, or VFX. Um, just high level general opinion of, of where we're at now and what we can, you know, look forward to over the next 10 years, as far as innovation goes, do you, do you kind of feel that as you're going through the motions or you just kind yeah, of, it's strange. that's a really good question because as soon as even before Jurassic Park, the first Jurassic Park came out, you know, all of us from stop motion animators like Phil Tippett to um, all of us effects guys started going, Oh my God. Oh my God. There's going to be no business at all in just a handful of years. And that did happen because, you know, at that point, directors and producers and writers didn't really, I mean, the same kind of thing happened as when, you know, American Werewolf came out. All the directors and and writers said, look, we can do anything now. Man turned into a werewolf. Let's just write whatever we want. And those effects guys will figure out how to do it. So it kind of opened up filmmaking to effects uh, that had never been possible before. The same thing happened with digital around the time of Jurassic Park coming out. Filmmakers said, well, those makeup effects were great, but they can't jump and they can't smile very well and they can't run as fast as puppets. Um, and so they started writing all these movies with digital characters in them. And that, and it was a catchphrase. And so all these young filmmakers said, well, let's go digital because it just sounded hip and it sounded cool. And they didn't even really know what digital meant back then. Uh, but it was a huge blow to our industry for years and years and years. And what's happened uh, in the past, you know, three, four, five years is a couple of things that have brought practical effects back. And, um, one of them, it's really come full circle. Um, one of them is all the filmmakers that grew up on the, uh, you know, the movies of the eighties and early nineties, they were kids then now they're making their own movies and they want to go back to that kind of nostalgic feeling that they had when they saw the movies that we worked on. So that's one thing. And now the catchphrase is let's go all practical. It's like the absolute opposite as it was 20 years ago. Let's go all digital. Now they're saying let's go all practical, which is never practical. So ultimately, I mean, every script I get, every director, every writer I talk to, we're going to go all practical. And you try, but ultimately they'll cover it up with a lot of digital stuff or at least do it correctly, like Guillermo del Toro and Tim Burton do sometimes, uh, which is a blend of the two things. Um, Now, the other thing that's happened is that, oh my God, you know, if... If streaming hadn't happened, I think our in- industry would be dead now. I think that the digital uh, comeuppance would have, would have been the nail in the coffin. But what's happened over these past 10 years is that, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, we had four, five, six customers. We had Universal. We had the television stations, the three big televisions, ABC, NBC, CBS, maybe HBO. But, you know, we, we just had the big studios and we had the big television and the big cable, and that was it. So there's a handful of customers. Can you even count how many new movies Netflix alone puts out now? Let's talk about Hulu. All of these streaming services. Um, so the demand for effects now is 10, 20-fold what it used to be, at least. And so there's a lot more effects happening right now. And the business in some ways is stronger now, I think, because of that, because there's a huge demand for effects. I mean, just look at, you know, 20 years ago, nobody said, well, let's make a dead body for an autopsy. They just put a human on the autopsy table, you know, with maybe a, a Y incision on it. But now, you know, the, the, the go-to is to make a full-on dead body, which costs $20,000 at least, maybe fifty. Um, You know, and you know, there's just so much demand for the stuff right now that it's really created a resurgence. On the other hand, along with the virus, maybe we can get into that right now a little bit, but... Um, 
it's 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 really because there are so many companies now. We know that Stan Winston, unfortunately, has passed away. We know that Rick Baker closed his studio. We know that I closed mine. We know that Rob Bottin's out of the picture. So who does that leave? You know, from the old guard that leaves ADI. Kevin Yeager works very, very rarely when he wants to. I think he just did the new Bill and Ted film. Um, but there's like nobody left from the old days, right? So every other company that's fighting for this work right now is the new regime. And they're the young goth kids with the purple hair and the tattoos. And they are fighting like rabid hyenas for scraps. You know, so the price goes down and down and down. The, the, the time frame for building goes down and down and down. And so the business is very, even though there's more work right now, the business is much more cutthroat, I think, than it was. And the prices have gone down and the build times have gone down. And it's very difficult and, and, and almost impossible, very, very rare to see something that was created with painstaking love and care like we used to see in the 80s and 90s. It's usually just done as quickly as possible. You know, I mean, there are some incredible studios. Odd Studio is one of my favorite studios. The one in Australia, do you know this guy's? Pod. Maybe if I saw some of the stuff they were were doing, yeah, they're amazing. I mean, they're, they're, don't don't get me wrong. I mean, right now there's a, there's a a huge, very talented company in almost every country in the world. I mean, there are great people in France. There's obviously great people in England. Uh, there's great people in Canada. The, I know a couple of people in Mexico. Um, <clears throat> it's um, I mean the, the the talent hasn't shrunk just because of the just because of the time frames and the uh, and the budget shrinking. Yeah, but 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 they have, and I think part of that has to do with the fact that all the the internet for one, so all of this information is is shared much more readily, and uh, secondly, things like the Stan Winston School, and you know it's more of a global community now. I mean, I think that the tax industry has become so much more of a, a huge family than it used to be because of the internet. We're always, you know, sharing ideas and showing our work and everybody talks and everybody learns from it. And so, you know, I mean, there, there's, there's a good side and there's a bad side. No money, no time, but all this talent, all this information, all this knowledge shared so freely all over the world. Well, that's very cool. Thank, thanks for sharing that. That's really good insight. I mean, um, as somebody who's a complete outsider, I, I don't know the inner workings of the film industry, let alone the subset of the special <laughs> effects industry. But um, I bet it's uh, it's a unique perspective that you have having – you know, lived through it and see these changes kind of in, in real time. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good thing. I mean, this, this, listen, the state of the art, no matter what the prices and timeframes are, the state of the art is getting better and better and better and better. I mean, I'm losing my mind, but the fact, the fact is the, um, the techniques that we use and the materials that we use have had to evolve along with, Filmmaking techniques. I mean, high definition. I mean, I'm, just, I'm reading. They're starting to go with 12K. 12K. What are you going to be able to see around things? You know, <laughs> things. What do you need 12K for? But what that means is, um, you know, a movie like uh, the, or a makeup like uh, Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill in The Darkest Hour, or what's his name in Vice? Who played the Dick Cheney in Vice? Oh, uh, Christian Bale. Yeah, and all the stuff Kazoo is doing, um, those makeups on uh, what's that? What's that new movie? God damn it! Uh, with the three girls that are wearing prosthetic makeups, Nicole Kidman, and oh, I don't know, bombshell, bombshell. <laughs> I'm, 
Oh, right, right, right. These makeups are unbelievable. And there's an old makeup, old age makeup on John Lithgow that is one of the best, maybe the best old age makeup I've ever seen. But here's the thing. Um, <clears throat> producers, directors used to be really afraid of putting someone in a foam rubber likeness makeup or an age makeup because that's an opaque product. Foam rubber is inherently white. And you've got to be Vincent Van Gogh to break up the, the color and, 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 ha- and trick the camera into thinking it's translucent because skin is translucent. And then the edges are always a problem, particularly around the eyes, because that skin is so thin and translucent there. And how do you get under the eyelashes? And if you have a bad makeup, what that's going to do, it's basically going to pull the audience right out of your movie. And it'll ruin your movie. It's a lot of responsibility. Now, with the new uh, high-definition stuff, guess what? That we had to evolve. And what that's, once again, doing is that's allowing producers and directors and writers to say, oh my God, we can do anything. We can do a bunch of old age makeups. We can do likeness makeup. So we're seeing a lot more of that for, again, two reasons. Because one, we're using silicone, which is translucent. And the edges are so easy to blend. They practically blend themselves. They are invisible almost in person. It's so different. It's a game changer than compared to foam rubber. Um, and then secondly, it takes much less time to paint because it's translucent already. It's already intrinsically colored, the same color generally as the skin of your actor. So it doesn't take as much time to paint. Um, and the, Jesus Christ. And also, you know, it, it, it holds up in close-ups on HD. And so it, we're seeing crazy, beautiful. Dick Smith is spinning in his grave right now. The, God, the godfather <laughs> of our industry who did the exorcist, um, <clears throat> Godfather, taxi driver, Amadeus, all of these things. If only he were still around to see what's happening, because you, you see these makeups just constantly pop up online and in major, major movies that nobody would have ever attempted before, because like I said, it could potentially ruin the film. Now, the other thing about it is if there's a problem, because there are problems always with techniques, edges start lifting, the sweat underneath the skin creates bubbles. Well, guess what? In the old days, if you had an edge lifting or if you had a problem, that was it. Your audience saw that on a 40-foot screen, but now it can be digitally touched up. So the producers are very calm about it now because even though the makeup techniques are better and the quality is better, if there is indeed a problem, it can be fixed. Right. It's interesting. It's kind of like the, the technology kind of dictates that the the uh, uh, everything has to catch up with each other. So so nobody can you, – you, you have to develop these new techniques – in order to, uh, you know, if you're going to have 12 K or, or I didn't even know there was another K Pat, I knew, I've heard of eight, but I didn't know. I didn't know you could get past eight. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, did we lose Matt? Is he gone? I just don't see. I, him I don't know where he went. He, right, well, he, uh, he disappeared. He bailed. Yeah. Uh, but I know, I know he had a question that, that we've, we've all had. Um, I know from, at least from my reading, you're a huge Stephen King fan. Yes. And, you had the opportunity to, I assume, work with him on the stand. And uh, from what I was, my understanding is he kind of encouraged you or or at least, I guess, motivated you to write Rubberhead. And I just wanted to kind of hear about the book and the genesis of that and how that is going currently, because I know it's going to be five volumes and, you know, where you're at with that. Uh, Yeah, I guess, strangely enough, at two o'clock, just well, on my time zone, just an hour and a half ago, I had a conference call with my publisher. And, uh, well, you know, I mean, I... In 2006, I closed my doors because I I was like thinking, well, this industry is dead because of digital revolution. And even if it's not dead, I'm going to be working out of a sweaty garage instead of a beautiful 20,000 square foot state-of-the-art facility like I had. 
and you know, it will never be these multi-million dollar contracts again, which I was dead wrong. I mean, take a look. I just saw that new uh, uh, Kristen Stewart film, Underwater. Have you seen that? Uh, not yet. I heard, yeah. I heard some good stuff, though. Well, take a look at, at the, 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 the deep docking suits for that. I mean, they're outrageous. And there's at least six of them. They had to work underwater. They're, 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 you know, they're stunt versions, all of this. Um, that's a huge endeavor. I'm not 100% with the design, but they're, they're outrageous. I mean, that was a multi-million dollar project. So, um, fuck, why are I bring up underwater? What were we talking about? Uh, just uh, uh, the Genesis the publisher, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, rubber head, rubber head, rubber. Oh yeah. So I, I thought the industry was, and was, was, was dying. And boy, was I wrong about that. <laughs> Although it did have a huge slump for years and years. And at, at that time I went to Costa Rica and I started writing and I wrote a couple of fiction novels and, uh, came back to, I, I moved back to Texas, not to California. So I could be around my family for a while. And uh, I moved to Austin. I moved to God, where else? I went to Tennessee for a while. I went to Louisiana for a while. I went all over the place, just writing and trying to lick my wounds from the film industry. Um, and, you know, I, I couldn't get published. I just could not get my fiction work published because it was all fiction. I couldn't get my fiction work published. And so all the agents and all the publishers I spoke with said, look, you've got somewhat of a name in the film industry, uh, write about the film industry. And so when I finally moved back to California, which I don't even remember when it was, 2010 maybe, um, I just picked up my pen and I thought, okay, you know, I don't want to make this a regular memoir where it starts out when I was born and gradually goes through chronologically my life. I want to pick uh, the, the, the funniest stories, the most outrageous stories, the saddest stories on the biggest movies with the biggest actors I've worked with. And so that's kind of how it came about. And uh, originally, you know, it's, it was like a thousand pages and I didn't even want to have photos in it. I want it to be more like an Anthony Bourdain kitchen confidential thing, which was kind of, you know, exposed the underbelly of the, of the restaurant industry. But, you know, I couldn't get it published. I couldn't get it published. It was a thousand page book. What was I thinking? And so finally I broke it into five volumes and yes, volume two is running obscenely late on the Kickstarter. Um, the book's finished. Here it is. There it is. <laughs> cool. Very cool. Cool. However, we're having a really hard time because I, I'm with a new publisher this time. Um, and, uh, you know, from delay to delay to delay, unfortunately, we ended up putting our order in right as the virus kicked in because we're printing in China this time. I guess I don't even need to explain what happened. Nope. <laughs> the, the printer shut down. They recently reopened, but they're three months behind in the queue. And then it's three months from then to get them printed. And, and shipped to me, so we're still a long way out on that. But you know, that's how Rubber had started. Um, and it, obviously, some of you guys have read it. Anybody read it? Yeah. Yep, I have not yet. Yeah. Yep, yeah. I I love I, I mean I love, I love the section where you talked about working with Michael Jackson. That it, it was a long chapter, but it just just the, even though the storytelling, just the ups and downs of the whole thing, um, and then you figured out how to turn him into a robot. And then they fired me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting? What I've found about this, this series so far, because I have just to, you know, satiate the, the Kickstarter backers on volume two, I sent out the, the ebook and I've gotten nothing but really, really good reviews on it. But 
you know, a lot of people don't like to read these days. The, the attention span is so, they just look at the pictures, you know, which kills me because to me, first and foremost, mm-hmm. these books, this series of books is, you know, obviously, you know, you jerk off and look at the pictures of your favorite movies. That's great. I understand that. I do it too. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, Scooby-Doo. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> exact quote, exact quote. But, I've said that. But, the, <laughs> but, the, but, you know, I'm really proud of the writing because like I said, I had written several, many, many, many short stories and I think three finished novels, fiction novels. And so I really had cut my teeth <clears throat> on figuring out how to write a narrative by the time I started Rubberhead and it kills me that people don't, that's not their first and foremost thing because you know, it's a, it is a weird book, you know, it's very weird and it's going to get weirder as the volumes continue because <laughs> volume two is very much, there's a ghost story with woven in and out of it. Um, cool. it volume two basically concentrates on, uh, um, the greatest hits of the eighties. I mean, it covers fright night. It covers big trouble in China. It covers two. Um, I don't even remember. I have to look now. Um, but you know, to me, it's 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 uh, it's not just a picture book. It's not just an art book. It's a it's a book book. Yeah, and and I love too on the audio book that you break the rules. So you'll interject with some thoughts that you're thinking as you're reading it, and not just reading it verbatim. And oh, I totally go off script. I know, and I'm dying to do the ver- audio <laughs> version on this because that was a blast. It was so fun. It took about four or five nights, about four hour sessions each, but. Uh, unfortunately, the guy, uh, they're actually, uh, in, it, we're in production right now on a documentary based on the book series, a documentary called Rubberhead. Oh, based awesome. On special effects. Yeah. We've been shooting for about a year now, but um, the guy that's going to do, do going to record the, uh, the audiobook for volume two is in New York. He's my producer for volume uh, for, for the documentary. And, uh, you know, he's taking care of his 85 year old dad and he doesn't want to fly and, so everything's fucked up and on hold now because of this. Yep. Steve, I had a question. Um, you're very associated, obviously, with Ghostbusters in our community. Everybody knows the stories about the creation of Slimer and, and, and you know, all of that. One thing, though, uh, I'm a collector. I'm a toy collector, I'm, I'm, as you can probably see behind me. Um, when it comes to toys, when it comes to the designs of Slimer, the Green Ghost, over the years, whether it be, you know, uh, maquettes or, or models or statues or, you know, what we saw in the last Ghostbusters movie or m- maybe the next one, we don't know yet. What do you think it is that I feel like they never get it right? Like nobody's, they never actually capture exactly what you designed. Uh, there's obviously a lot of subtleties to the design that make it so stand out, but the, the, the Ghostbusters one Slimer specifically is obviously, you know, the best. Uh, it's the first and the best. And they just, when I say they, I mean just anybody who tackles a replication of, a, of any kind, they never quite nail it. You think there's I, a- I I'm glad you mentioned that, but I couldn't agree with you more. And it's offensive to me. <laughs> uh, and I think there's a couple of, re- it is. I think there's a couple. Like if you take a look, and I, I've gone on, public record saying this before, and I know the sculptor quite well, Mark Siegel, he worked on Ghostbusters 1, but he sculpted the, the Slimer for Ghostbusters 2, and there's so many inherent problems with that. It's awful. And that, that was just like what, a year and a half later? It's fucking awful. It's terrible. Not only does it look terrible, but uh, they, they show, I've seen the interior mechanics, but they, they took the exact opposite approach that I did to it, whereas it's, it's, it's just so crammed full of motors and they're not even uh hydraulic which are smooth motors and not servos which are somewhat smooth it's uh it's pneumatic 
which is like chirp, 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 air motors, air motors. This is a horrible. And so therefore you don't get any wobble of the skin. You don't get the big mouth thing happening. You don't get the brows squinching. You don't get any of that Tex Avery cartoon stuff because when we did volume, when we did Ghostbusters one, my whole goal was to make it like to, to not use what Rick Baker or Rob Bottin or Greg Cannon taught me where you just stick a bicycle cable and, you know, make it smile. I wanted to get these huge cartoon. So there's just a bunch of people sticking their hands in it, wearing black suits. Uh, there's rods inside of it. There's all the, even the tongue is a, a glove. Um, so I, I just don't know. I, I, I think sometimes not in Mark's case, who did the, uh, the, uh, Hey, stop it, buddy. <laughs> When he's hungry, you know what he does? He, he does one of two things. He sneaks up behind me. Stop. He sneaks up behind me and just slides his needles right into my back. Yeah. It's like, oh, my fucking God. I love that. That's not a good way. But the other thing he'll do when he's really hungry is he'll, uh, he'll sit on my desk and he'll just not put his claws out at all, but he'll just very softly touch my face. That one works. Um, what were we talking about? Yeah, so, so Mark's a good sculptor. Smart. Um, but I think that, um, you know, stop it. Go somewhere else. I think that, uh, you know, part of it is because that thing was so amorphous and so blobby and because it did indeed change shapes all the time. Um, so every still you look at it, it looks like a different sculpture. So people are like, I don't even know what I'm sculpting because what is it? You know, it looks different in all the different scenes because it is. And I've had the same problem. I sculpted a Slimer mask for spirit. Halloween stores a couple of years back and they kept sending pictures to me and saying, no, 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 this isn't right. And they would send me a, you know, a picture of Slimer from Ghostbusters two or that horrible bank. Have you seen that bank? Yeah. Oh, it looks like a, a bird. It, was, it looks like a turd that was painted green. It's yeah. so bad. Yeah. That thing is so horrible. So, you know, that proves that they're like t- telling the guy that designed it and sculpted the first one that, my Slimer doesn't look like the one from the movie because they're sending me a picture from, right. you know, and then you've got the cartoon and you've got all this other stuff. I'll tell you one thing though. Um, lately the designs have been getting a lot better for one good reason. Maybe a couple. I put out a, a little Slimer figure on the first Kickstarter. Did you guys see that? The glowing Slimer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yep. There's one know, behind me over here. <laughs> there's pictures of it. Uh, the, the people have it. And so they can see exactly what it looks like. And secondly, NECA and one other company put out the full scale one from a sculpture that I, I, I commissioned. Have you seen the big one? Yeah. Yeah. I got a buddy who has the, uh, the NECA one. Yeah. So that's based on that. That, that was, is a remold off of a sculpture that I had a guy named Andy Schoenberg do at my studio as a display piece because the original ones were long lost. So, you know, he had access to all the original photos. He had me art directing it. And so now that's out there. And so now there's a lot more, you know, three dimensional real world reference. So I'm seeing some products that are actually pretty good. Now. Getting better. And do you, I mean, it's kind of weird, like, so you were at FanFest last year, and it's kind of cool to get all the, even though the, the event itself was... FanFest, where was that? That was the one on the Sony lot. The uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A little cha- we were all there. A little chaotic, but still fun to, you know, to get everybody <laughs> together. Um, do you have any regular contact with anybody at, at Ghost Core or Sony? Do they ever hit you up for anything, whether it's, you know, ideas, referencing, you know, looking at reference photos, signing mm-hmm. off? I get stuff all the time. I'm dealing with uh, another company right now. I've been dealing with them for a few months that have the license now to do. They want they want to license my uh, the little glowing one. Oh, cool! Very cool. 
which is cool because all I got to do is send that to China. They're going to change the arm position, but uh, so it looks different. But um, uh, I mean, no, I can't even tell you how many people call me about Solana. Uh, <laughs> he holds you. <laughs> but you know what? What really bugs me is I was not. I mean, I, I really wanted to be involved with the new Jason Reitman thing because I know they made it. Well, e- even the, the all-female version. Um, you know, there was a practical Slimer made for that. I'm, I'm not sure if you guys are aware of that, are you? Yeah, was, I saw some pictures of it uh, earlier this year for the first time. It, it, it looks so right up there. I don't know which one wins for worst Slimer. Slimer Ghostbusters yeah. 2 or that. It's like no wonder they redid it digitally. I mean, it looked right. pretty pretty bad. However, um, my my designer of years and years and years, a gentleman, a Greek guy named Konstantin Sakaris, who designed all my stuff with me for for a long, long time, maybe over a decade. Um, he was brought in to design the um, the uh, the digital version of both the female and the and the regular Slimer, and uh, he did a really good job because you know he worked with me for years and he knew what it looked like, so I like that one. However, on this new Jason Reitman one. Uh, and, and I, I called them. I, I went after them like crazy on, on the all-female version saying, let me do it. I've got even better ideas this year, uh, this time at this point. And uh, no, 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 I'm probably too old school for them or whatever. But um, this time around, they hired um, Arian Tweeten. Do you know the guy? I'm not familiar with that name. Yeah, he's one of Rick Baker's protégés. And he's really, he did that movie Wonder, that little kid that's got that weird. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he did uh, Maleficent. He did the makeup on Angelina Jolie. So he's really talented. I'm not sure I've ever seen him do it. Hey, buddy, get out of the way. I'm not sure I've ever seen him do a, a large-scale animatronic, but we'll see. We'll see soon enough. Yeah. But no, I just, it's, you know, it's like what, they, they kicked Ivan Reitman off the all-female version. They, they said basically, because Ivan was my contact on that, but they said, ah, hey, you're too old. You don't have the sense of humor the kids want to hear. So yeah. Yeah, there's a book that's going to be Ridiculous. written. One day there's going to be a, a whole lot of stuff that comes out about the production of that that movie specifically. Yeah. But I actually, uh, I want to tag on to the Slimer conversation. I, I did have one. I don't want to be a nerd and ask a, a nerd question, Steve, but I do have one that bugged me. Yeah. Uh, Slimer has a great ass, and I just wanted to know if that was your idea, your design to give Slimer like all that junk in the trunk, or was it something that that they pitched to you or, cause I mean, his ass is fantastic, you know, uh, yeah, but I kind of wanted to hear lips, about, about lip smoking. Who's talking? That's uh, my, my, uh, my image is frozen. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, no, that was actually my idea because it, I'll tell you why. Um, if you look at, um, the profile of Slimer, it's got kind of a C shape where his face is up here and then his back bows in and then he's got the butt and the, the rest of the body comes up like this. And um, that, that's a very typical profile for a Tex Avery cartoon. And it also is the way Herman Munster used to walk. He would put his back in and his butt out and do this kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, if, if you look at him from a profile, he's doing that thing. And also, if you take a look at what Rob Bottin did on Explorers, same kind of thing. It's that cartoony kind of sea back with the big butt. And so I'm, I'm, I'm standing there looking at this thing and it's got the right profile. It's got the right belly shape in the front. What do I do that with that huge giant piece of clay in the back? Well, it was his butt. 
You know, I mean, all you would have to do is stick legs on that thing and it would look like a big fat green Herman Munster. Very interesting. That's very cool. I, uh, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Craig. Sorry. No, you're good. Um, you know, I, I know we're, we're a little pressed for time here. Um, Matt and I had a question. We, when we were searching for images of you, um, you know, for the signing we're going to be doing in the group, uh, I found one picture of you and Linda Frobos working on one of the terror dogs. Right. And that was news to, to both of us. We didn't know that you had any involvement in the terror dog. And I just wanted to know, you know, kind of what your role was there. And if you could just talk a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, that was news to me too. When I saw that picture, I'm like, I don't even remember helping. <laughs> But, you know, it was, you know, we had a, the, the ghost shop on, on uh, at Boss Film Corporation <clears throat> on Ghostbusters. It was just a blast. It was the first show we did there. And so we were all making up the rules as we went along. It was just so, so much fun. It was like one of the funnest times I've ever had. Uh, because that also was the first time I was really in charge of something. So it was like a playground. And I didn't have to worry about the budgets or the money. It all came from the front office. And so they just said, do whatever you want. I whoever you want. You want to stick feathers all over something, put a man on it. We don't care. Um, so we just all jumped in and helped when we had a deadline. And so, I mean, I, it's not like I was coming in and saying, no, do it like this. I was, I think we probably had a deadline for molding. And so we all jumped in and, and helped do it. That Well, the way Ghostbusters worked to repeat myself ad nauseum is that Randy Cook, the <laughs> stop motion animator, who also won three consecutive Oscars on the Lord of the Rings trilogy for uh, visual effects. Uh, was my partner on that show. And so in the beginning, we, we just split the, the work up. We said, well, well, how to do this? And so I took Slimer, I took the cab driver, I took the subway ghost, I took the librarian, and uh, Randy took <laughs> the terror dogs. <laughs> it was real fair, real even split. Yeah, the, the, the state of Marshmallow Man was kind of a, you know, basically Bill Bryan was kind of in charge of it underneath Randy and, and I. Um, but still, Randy and I were the co-heads of the studio, and we just, Bill was talented enough. We said, hey, just make it, and uh, if, if you need any help, we're here. So you you did the Subway Ghost as well, the blue one that kind of flies out toward the end of the, like, I think it's right around the taxi uh, ghost. Yeah, it's when, well, all, all the ghosts, when all the ghosts start start escaping. Yeah, I did. It was, um, it's not blue, actually. Maybe it looked blue in the final film, but it was uh, a very translucent, ruddy, kind of reddish-brown color. Oh, it had iridescent powder in it, and uh, we shot that actually in a water tank. Oh, we shot it underwater. <laughs> That's so, new. As a marionette, yeah, we shot it as a marionette and a rod puppet in one of the cloud tanks at Boss Film because it was just easier. Because you know, and that that was one of the first times I actually worked underwater. I've worked underwater a lot since, obviously on the Abyss, on Sphere, Anaconda, um, and I learned that very technique on Ghostbusters with the library ghost is that not the library, the, the subway ghost is that fuck stick it in water and water does 90% of the work for you. It's very true. And uh, Steve, you know, on the, uh, on the production Ghostbusters, I, I've seen some conflicting uh, titles for you. What would you say was your actual title? on the, Yeah, on they're the- very conflicting and it bugs me to this day. Thank you for bringing that up. Actually. Uh, Rob Botin excised my name from The Howling, and I was one of his top guys for four or five months on that show. Um, he took my name off the credits because we had a, a falling out, which annoys the shit out of me. But uh, the same thing on that. It's it, I don't. I think my credit is Onionhead and Librarian Sculptor. 
that's it. What about the cab driver? What about the librarian? What about the fact that Randy and I ran that fucking show? It should have been, uh, you know, co-department supervisor with Randy Cook for all the ghosts. And I mean, we figured out, I mean, there was no difference between the way Randy and I ran that company as the way Rob Bottin or Rick Baker runs theirs. You know, you've got a guy at the top who hires a bunch of other people, art directs them, and then gets in and gets their hands dirty when they can. That's exactly how we ran that show. And I was mortally offended with my credit on that. And I guess I won't care once I'm dead and in La La Land or wherever we go. But I it really wasn't just you. Uh, <laughs> you know, you don't want to have a uh... Everybody gives me credit for everything that we did on Boulder Guys 2. Everybody gives me credit for everything. Mm-hmm. I lost Film Corporation. Everything that we did on Ghostbusters, everything that we did on Fright Night. But Randy was there. I think Randy just doesn't like the publicity. You know, I try to get him to go to conventions. He doesn't want to do it. I try to get him involved in yeah. uh, documentaries. He doesn't want to do it. So basically, over the years, everybody just moves the credit to me, which I'm perfectly fine with, but I feel bad about it. <laughs> we can speak to Randy. We've we've tried to uh, reach out to him as well for our, our group because he's, he is the terror dogs and a lot of people love those. And a lot of people our age, they were terrified by the terror dogs and they were kids. Right. But and uh, we'd love to, to work with them. But has he gotten back no. to you? See, that's my point. No. Yeah. I should just start taking credit for the terror dogs too. Right. Randy would <laughs> There's a, there's, we have Maybe proof. We have photo proof. The Linda Frobos. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good. Uh, it's interesting, the credit thing, uh, just real quickly, we had a conversation with Terry Harden. I'm not sure if you worked directly with her on a, on the film or not. Um, yeah, she she also told a story. Yeah, so she tells a story about how her and Mark Wilson and, and a bunch of people just didn't get credit at all. And and Richard Edlund had to take out an ad in ID, I think it was, to give them all credit after the movie hit. And so we actually tracked down a copy of that ad for her that listed all these unsung heroes, Sam Longoria, all these people that that didn't get credited in the film uh, yeah. after the fact. So it's interesting that yours, you've got a similar situation going on. Well, I mean, the thing is back then, uh, the makeup effects industry was kind of new in the animatronics industry. And so people didn't really know how to deal with the credits. That's part of it. But also as opposed to now where you'll have like, you know, 45 minutes of digital companies and everybody and their mother and their dogs get credit on it. It's always been a very difficult <laughs> thing to get credit for people. I mean, I thought that and thought that and thought. you go in that your initial contract negotiations and they'll tell you before on a, on a Spider-Man too, Dr. Octopus, they'll tell you in the beginning, you know, you get 12 credits and that's it. And I'm like, but I'm going to have 95 people work on this. Like, nope. You get 12 credits. <laughs> that's, that's insane. Are we still there? Yeah. We're good. Yeah. Oh, we're good. Sorry. I, everybody froze again. Uh, well, Steve, um, this was a really fantastic conversation. Um, I, I've always enjoyed speaking with you, and I'm glad that uh, Craig and Matt had an opportunity here as well. Um, thank you so much for um, you know doing the signing with our group. Uh, Slimer means a lot to a lot of us, and and uh, Taxi Driver and Library Ghost and all those things that you created. We're really excited to work with you. And look, he's doing. And, uh, just want to thank thing. you for taking the time. <laughs> yeah. he was doing the what's, what's the cat's name? It's chaos, actually. Chaos. Okay. Yeah, the, the green. We'll build this as a chaos with a K. Chaos with a K. We'll build this as a conversation with Steve and chaos. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, I'm sorry that he he uh, destroyed your little outro there. Yeah, no, it was lovely speaking oh, with okay. you. And 
it was fresh and it was interesting and it wasn't like uh, the typical Ghostbusters interview. Well, I, I swear to God, I swear to God, they're going to wheel me out in a wheelchair when I'm a hundred years old and say, how did you make Slimer? Yeah. I, I, that's actually, <laughs> maybe as like a final thing, like you, you do a lot of conventions, you do, you know, you've, you've done them over the years and like, I always, as a, you know, I love going to panels and I love attending those kinds of things, but I'm always kind of like holding my, when anytime somebody stands up and asks a question, I'm just like, Oh no, here we go. Because, <laughs> because it's always, it's either the same stuff or just something where it's just like, Oh, don't ask that. <laughs> Nobody wants, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, you wasted your question with that. One. Right. Right. So, uh, well, I was at, yeah, a, I, I was that. at a panel once with Christopher Lloyd and somebody waited in line and asked his question was, did Christopher Lloyd enjoy acting? <laughs> so it's just like, Ugh. all right. <laughs> Uh, he does. Uh, I hope I didn't ask him about the uh, Jim Ignatowski character because he fucking hates that. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I, did a, I did a movie with him, and he he actually sounds like that character. He really. I did a movie called Suburban Commando. It was a Hulk Hogan film. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh hell yeah. Full body uh, alien. We made Hulk's ridiculous armor for it as well. But um, I was with Bill Corso. Hey, will you stop being so cute? I was with Bill Corso. <laughs> Oscar-winning makeup artist used to art direct my company. Uh, Bill Corso just so happens to do the world's greatest Jim Ignatowski impersonation. But everybody before we went on set said, don't, 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 you cannot do that. You cannot. Don't, don't, don't bring up Jim Ignatowski. Probably for the same reason I get a little annoyed at people bringing up Slimer. Except for you, guys. except for you guys. Right, right, no, there's right. so much more interesting yeah, stuff. Right. Like I did a, I did like a two week. Have you heard of the um, Brussels International Fantastic Film Festival? Every effects person, not every effects person, every genre person has been there as a as a guest, and it's a two week film festival. They had to cancel it this year because of COVID, but um, I was the uh, the president of the jury last year, and. Uh, Will you stop it? <laughs> and uh, I had to do so many things, you know, besides watch all the movies and judge the movies and the rest of the panel, you know, I had to do a master class. I had to do this. I had to do that. I was on stage constantly. And uh, at one point, I just got so tired of talking about the same old movies uh, that we talked about AI instead, which I thought had a little bit of a connection, which it does. That's yeah, right. For sure. Hey, Look at this guy. It took everything... Look at him. See on the show here. It took everything not to ask you about the nipples from species that shoot cables out, you know. Uh, but you know. <laughs> yeah, well, you can hardly see that in the film. We did do that. They actually they they rotate inside, and then we did a reverse <laughs> shot. Can you see that in the film where it actually comes out of her tit? It doesn't. You want to see it actually come out? out I, think. Show, it? I haven't seen species oh, yeah, in yeah, a long does. time. Long time. I mean, but I oh, could talk about up. Suburban Commando all day. Isn't there? What, what, what I'm, I've been racking my brain. There's a Ghostbusters <laughs> connection to Suburban Commando, and I can't remember what it is. It's like a proper. Oh, I think there's a PKE meter. PKE yeah. is reused. There's, there's a what? Yeah. The uh, the PKE meter from Ghostbusters. The the prop is reused as one of uh, Hulk Hogan's holding one at one point in that movie. Um, oh, that, that's interesting. There's another connection. Do you know what that? Do you know what that one is? Of uh, Ghostbusters and Suburban Commando. Hmm. Yeah. I don't. They're both modern classic of. <laughs> okay. I'm the connection. You're the connection. Gotcha. Gotcha. Got cool. it. 
Excellent. Well, Steve, uh, thanks for spending the afternoon with us. Uh, it's been truly breathtaking to have a conversation about uh, unique things. I'm glad that uh, we were able to talk today. And thank you again so much for uh, doing the signing with our group. We're really excited for that. Uh, we'll keep you constantly updated. And just thanks for, for being accessible to the fans and, and putting up with our nerdy questions. We thank <laughs> oh, you, you bet. This is fun. I mean, I can't, I can't turn down a, a podcast or anything. Now, what the fuck else am I going to do? That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. Craig, Craig just went on alert. <laughs> yeah, I might have to. Uh, we might have to do another uh, follow up or something. No, this was fun though. I appreciate it. Cool. So, uh, oh, oh, let me pet my book though. Um, they just gone up with the publisher. Oh yes, of course. You can. Uh, God damn it. Um, well, you can still order Rubberhead Volume One on Amazon, and you can also get the uh, the audio book on Audible now not selling them off my website anymore. So, you know, it's more legit now. So Rubberhead Volume 1, you, I think you can order rubber, you can pre-order Rubberhead Volume 2 on uh, Amazon, but the better way to get Rubberhead Volume 2 is um, to go to darkinkpublishing.com. Cool. Dark, okay. Dark Ink Publishing. Um, and get Rubberhead Volume 2, and uh, it's, it's got the Predator story in it from my lips to your ears. It's got everything in it. Awesome. The Jean Claude Van Damme photos I hear. What's that? Jean Claude Van Damme photos in there? Yes, yes, it does. It's uh, it's the greatest hits of the '80s, all wrapped up in a ghost story, a true ghost story. It's a really fun book. And like I said, it's already finished. Darkinkpublishing.com. Cool. I'm looking at it right awesome. now. Very cool. Well, thank you, Steve. We appreciate it. Excellent. Yeah, you bet. It was a lot of fun, you guys. The cat enjoyed it too. Bye, Chaos. Take it easy, Chaos. All right. All right, you guys. Have a good day. All right. Bye now. Bye.